You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. There's definitely something very weird going on here. Detective Roger Mortis has a problem. He's dead. But Detective Bigelow is bringing him back alive. We have something on the monitor, Captain. That's okay. Don't get up. Told you not to get up. Now, he's got 12 hours to solve the toughest murder case of his career. His own. What is this thing? Very ugly. Get down! When guns kill people? That's it. From now on, I'm a vegetarian. How do you fight this thing? Maybe we could drown it in A1 sauce. Treat Williams. Sit down. And Joe Piscopo are dead heat. You shoot them, they don't die. Keep a good cop dead. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Heather Drain. Hello, hello. Also back in the booth is Mr. Noel Thingval. Really, Darren Starr. We are wrapping up Shocktober 2019 with an episode on Mark Goldblatt's 1988 film Dead Heat. The film stars Treat Williams as Roger Mortis, who, along with his partner Doug Bigelow, played by Joe Piscopo, investigate a perplexing case that throws them into the world of the supernatural. We'll be spoiling the heck out of this movie, so if you haven't seen it, I implore you to track it down and give it a view before you listen to this episode. So, Heather, please tell me, when was the first time you saw Dead Heat, and what did you think? The first time I saw Dead Heat was back in the late 80s, and I believe it was via cable, because I don't remember renting it, and... My mom was pretty liberal, but I can't imagine her letting me rent an R-rated movie at, like, age nine or eight. I don't think she was that liberal. But, uh, but yeah, and I, I remember liking it, but it's one like, that always just kind of stayed in the haze of childhood until you brought up this episode. And so I got to rewatch it and revisit it in various cuts. And, uh, man, I think it's, I think it's a great joyride of a movie. I think it's, if you love action movies, horror, and comedy. It kind of gives you all of those on a nice silver platter. How about you, Noel? This was the first time I'd ever seen the movie, though I've owned a copy of it for about 18 years. Oh, wow. Yeah, this was one of those ones where I had never heard of it, but I had around that, you know, around 2000 or so, I saw uh, Goldblatt's Punisher for the first time. And I was looking up the other films that he did, and it just so happened that this was out on DVD from Anchor Bay, so I picked it up, along with a ton of other movies around that time that I still have not finished watching all of. Uh, I had a lot of disposable income there for a few years, and I kind of wasted a lot of it. Was that when you were slinging rock? No, this was a few years after I'd gone to meth by then. You know, Mike, I'm a collector of screenplays, and Anchor Bay I always had a soft spot for because they would put the screenplays on the DVD, so I would just kind of buy a lot of Anchor Bay 
DVDs based on whether or not they had the script on them. What Even if it was a film I never even heard of before. Because it'd just be like, hey, I can read a script and watch a movie. I saw this one... I think I did rent this on VHS because I don't remember watching this on cable. And this came out 88, kind of. I mean, 88 was the theatrical run, so it was probably out on VHS by 89 because it used to take a little longer than, like, two months or a day for things to go from the theater to uh, any sort of home video release. And I remember really liking this movie, and which is saying something because I don't know when the tide turned against Joe Piscopo, but I liked him on Saturday Night Live. I liked his run on there. Um, I liked some of the things that he did outside of SNL. Johnny Dangerously, Heather and I, we talked about that a little bit before we started recording. So he did some good things, but eventually he just got to be known as being a jerk. And I think this was right before the jerk era. And this is like as he's becoming a muscle head. And it's interesting that he uses this movie as a vehicle to show off his physique. Uh, but we'll talk about that as we go along. But really, the star of the show is Treat Williams, and he is fucking fantastic in this. Oh my god. He's so he's so good. Like a lot of people don't really think of him doing like comedy. At least I don't, you know, like or I didn't when I was a kid. Treat Williams is one of those guys that doesn't really get enough respect for I think being as multi-talented and multifaceted as a performer. Well, growing up on Deep Rising. Oh my god, that movie is so good. I love I that love film. I love Deep Rising. Deep Rising was the very first screenplay I ever bought. Well, Deep Rising that one was more of a dvd thing for me but i freaking loved it but for me growing up yeah i agree he was like more the db cooper guy the prince in the city guy the 1941 guy but then like going back and seeing him in something like hair and i'm just like holy shit he was fantastic in hair that he could sing and dance and do all that stuff like why isn't this guy bigger why wasn't he the star of the show when it came to Empire Strikes Back instead of the dude in the background who gets less screen time than than uh, Cliff from Cheers. The thing about Treat Williams is he's got that very classic leading man feel to him. And you see this a lot with a lot of actors where it's like they're really good, they're really fun, they got a wide range of roles, but they never quite click into the A-list mainstream because they're almost just a little too perfect clean cut. You know, it's a point where they're almost a little, I don't want to say bland, but you know, it's, it's like when you think of like who are the new hot, exciting stars, they're not the ones that leap to mind because they're almost just a little too, too clean, too classic. He always reminds me of a little bit of the guy who was the lead character in The Rocketeer. Like, had he been a few years younger, Treat Williams could have been The Rocketeer. Instead, he was second banana in The Phantom. Well, he wasn't the second banana. He was he was the the scenery chewing villain in the Phantom. He was having fun in that one, which is fine, and he's great when he's having fun. I mean, I think that he really holds this movie together because this movie, and I don't want to make a pun right off the bat, but it lives and dies by his performance, and that he gives us a very heartfelt performance in this role where it could just be splat stick through the whole thing. I think the script is really smart in the way that they actually give Roger Mortis character, even though he's got a joke name that they treat him with respect. 
His performance is a treat. Before we start really talking about this movie that much, I want to say that I haven't watched the DVD VHS version of this in Blu-ray in a long damn time. What I've been watching has been a fan edit called the uh, the Norwegian Composite by a fan editor named Transor. I love those fan edit names. <laughs> and it actually took – apparently when this played on Norwegian television, they had a different print – then was released on VHS and I think even to theaters. I think they chopped up stuff before that, but for whatever reason, Norway had a print of this that was longer. And so this fan editor or preservationist took that version of it and cut it together with a DVD version of it. And so now the version that I'm used to watching, you'll be watching it and then suddenly the quality will drop a little bit, and then there'll be Norwegian subtitles. But I'm seeing a more complete version of this film. But I, I'm i kind of a weirdo in that I like that we get those scenes where you can really tell like this was added in or added back in, because then it makes me think about it a little bit more to say, okay, what would happen if I was missing this scene? I actually watched uh, the version that's on Amazon Prime before getting this because i do not have it on vhs or dvd but uh i watched that one first then i watched the fan edit and uh one thing i thought was really interesting is usually when you see films like that are composites usually the stuff that is excised sometimes it's dialogue in the case of horror you typically kind of think it's going to be gore because a lot of horror films kind of suffered that in the 80s thanks to the mpaa the friday the 13th series being probably the most notorious example that and i think the burning and a lot of a lot of others any argento what was interesting about the norwegian cut is that I mean, there's a few extra scenes that are that have special effects, but a lot of it's just kind of like a little bit more exposition related, uh, which was interesting. I thought that was it's always kind of cool to see what what, you know, we were missing initially. Yeah. After reading the script, I watched the Anchor Bay DVD version, which is the R-rated theatrical cut. And then I watched the Norwegian cut. And then... Thankfully, today, I went and explored the deleted scenes on the DVD. There's additional there, – there's even more scenes on the DVD that are not in the Norwegian cut. I think part of that is the Norwegian cut was still also censored for TV, so they still had to censor out the gore, whereas a lot of the deleted scenes on the DVD have additional gore. That makes sense. One of those lead scenes, which you were nice enough and kind enough to share with us, we will have to touch upon uh, a little bit later. We probably need to go into the beginnings of the movie and everything. For oh, yeah. And I'll definitely get into some more of those as we go along. Oh, it's so good, though. Well, we start with the jewel robbery, like any good movie should start with. And this has two, and I'm going to use the word musclehead, thieves coming in, and they put on these weird, almost gimp masks. I'm not sure why they're doing this. <laughs> Even though they refer to each other by their first names, okay, that's not a problem. And um, they come in there like Mr. Blonde and Reservoir Dog, start shooting up everybody, and they just do not give a fuck. And when the cops show up outside, they, again, they just don't give a fuck. They've got a, all their, you know, I'm surprised they don't have the dollar signs on the bags that they have with them, but they, they put other jewelry into the, you know, the pillowcases and whatnot and go outside. And there's tons of cops out there. 
I think it was an inside job or it could be the woman pressing the silent alarm and the cops cannot take these guys down because no matter how many times they shoot them, they are still standing. And it is up to our two main police officers, Doug and Roger, to stop these guys along with. And I was so happy to see Robert Picardo in here. Yes. Oh, my God. I love him so much. I I actually have it in my notes, Robert Picardo. I was like, actually, my original note was, hey, it's that badass from China Beach. And I was like, oh, then I remembered his name. It's Robert Picardo. (laughs) Apparently, Mark Goldblatt had uh, was the editor on The Howling and had struck up a friendship with, uh, yeah, and Piranha and struck up a friendship with Picardo at that time, since we all know that he worked a lot with Joe Dante, Picardo did, as well as, I mean, pretty much any time Rob Bottin is doing special effects, it's going to be Picardo doing all the uh, the works in that. So um, he him as the werewolf in The Howling, that is one of the great scenes. He's, he's one of those actors that it's like the moment you bring him up, it is this whole wealth of credits so just covering the whole range of genre entertainment. Roger takes things into his own hands. He's the hotshot cop. And this is 1988, ladies and gentlemen, when this is coming out. So we are so in the era of buddy cop movies. I mean, this, you know, we, we, we kick things off with, I don't know, Freebie and the Bean, Hickey and Boggs, sometime in the 1970s. And we never looked back. And it has just been buddy cop for so many years, but this is when we are at that prime time. This is Lethal Weapon era, which we will talk about because the screenwriter's brother happened to write Lethal Weapon, and this is prime time for this kind of stuff. And it is one of those, it's kind of like that, one of the few jokes that actually lands in Last Action Hero. It is when you are pairing the woman with the cartoon cat and trying to make a buddy cop movie out of that. This cartoon cat. He's supposed to be back on duty. He was only suspended for a month. Now shut up. Listen to what I'm saying. An animated cat just walked into the squad room. Hello? He'll do it again tomorrow, so what's your point? That cat is one of the best men I got. Yeah. Now who is this twerk, and where is that smile on his face? And this is right there, too, because after they destroy some property, then they're right in the uh, the uh, black police chief's office, and he's reading them the riot act. And I'm just like, my God, how many movies have I seen this in? I mean, Theodore Rex. One thing I thought was interesting during the whole shootout scene is in the dynamic between Roger and Doug, and that I thought was a little weird. It's a bloodbath. There's, you're seeing a lot of officers get gunned down and shot. And Doug, the Piscopo character, just keeps making wisecracks and shit. <laughs> I'm just like, damn, like, this is, your co-workers are getting gunned down in front of you, sir. Maybe cool down. But that's why I love when Picardo, like, one of the things they end up getting in trouble for is saying, is, is Doug saying inappropriate things. <laughs> He's got fucking scene. Tourette's, man. There is something literally wrong with him. I mean, I don't, he needs to go in for some help and he's got weird like sex addiction thing and he's <laughs> hitting on every person that he possibly runs across. And then there's like that weird gay panic mo- moment when he's talking about how the mulberry lipstick brings out Roger's eyes. I'm just like, <laughs> this is everything that is wrong in the eighties is right here in this Joe Piscopo character, but yet, even though, like, a little Joe Piscopo goes a long way in this movie, 
I still like this character, which and I'm just like, why? Why do I like him? Even though he has to hit on everything, he makes these inappropriate remarks, and he's just kind of a sleaze bag. The Joe Piscopo character is one of the things that doesn't fully work for me in the film. I don't hate him. I actually love him when he's in more serious moments. I think he has a good look to him, but I do think a lot of his one-liners do fall flat. And it just, it almost feels like they're, they're cranking out so many one-liners that that's kind of all they really have to define the character. Whereas I think the stronger moments are the bits where it's like, I just lost my friend or I'm watching my friend dying in front of me. You know, those are the really good moments that, that really stand out to me. And I think the one-liners, they just kind of, they're, they're throwing out too many of them without, again, like without like feeling like they fit the moment. Uh, I will say there are two one-liners in this film though, that I thought were exceptional. One of them is a little bit later on in the film when they're investigating a pharmaceutical company that could possibly be tied to these string of the dead being somehow alive and being criminals is the recept the male guard is looking at a penthouse like just blatantly just looking at a, at a shoe penthouse ignoring them and then Doug says, I hate to interrupt your erection for a second. <laughs> I'm sorry, that was that was funny. a good one. And there's a bit and there's a bit about when they go outside a library and he's like, Oh hey, a library. I always wonder what the inside of one of these looks like. <laughs> See, and, and those so are good. Them, those are good ones. Those are good. But you're right, some of them there are a few that fall flat, and it is kind of you know, and I don't think it hurts the movie, but there is kind of a, a weird tonality at times where you know, when you see his character in shock and being serious, and he actually pulls it off. Like, I don't I don't think anybody, you know, for the most part, would think about Joe Piscopo pulling off any sort of serious emotion, because comedy is pretty much all he's known for. But, uh, but he does good. I mean, to the point where I almost kind of wish the movie was maybe a little bit longer, because it's a pretty breezy short movie. It's like, what, 89? 86? Yeah, I mean, we're not even hitting a 90 minute. Even the extended cut is only like 90 it's kind of those rare instances where you wish a film was longer, but but I always say that's good. Like you'd rather something be longer than be like, God, this movie won't end. Like why why does it hate me? <laughs> and what's what's interesting is on the DVD they have a storyboard gallery, and the character of Bigelow is always drawn as like a big fat schlubby guy. So so it was definitely a departure. I think they basically kept the character as written, but then went the whole bodybuilder meathead route. Also, I love, Mike, that you refer to the two uh, robbers at the beginning as kind of muscle heads, because one of them looks like Piscopo. Like, I had, <laughs> I was like, is, is that, wait, that's not him. I know that was actually Arnold Schwarzenegger's stunt double. I can't remember his name, but I know he was, he was an actual big stunt man who could actually match Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's a swoletariat right there. That is a swole, muscly man. Yes. Yeah, and that's another guy that uh, Goldblatt knew through uh, his editing gig because he was actually doing some uh, I think he worked on The Terminator and of course Commando and Predator 2 even though Arnold wasn't in that one sorry he did Terminator but, uh, yeah but he he made tons of connections as an editor which you don't necessarily think like that this editor has made all these inroads into other areas and it's like great so he knew Arnold's stunt double and was like yeah come on aboard and to hear him and the producers and uh, the, uh, Terry Black, the screenwriter, to hear them talk about Darren McGavin, who shows up here as the head coroner, he they just it makes my heart swell. They are such fans of McGavin, and they know that he is gold. And every time that he is on screen, it just lights up the screen. And I'm so happy whenever he shows up. 
the the scene where he's trying to listen to Treat Williams' heartbeat and is just getting pissed about it, and then you also realize he's faking that. Yeah, watching this a second time, knowing that he's in on it, it's like, oh, okay, this really changes some things. Dear McGavin is the man. He's one of those actors that you love so much that you literally will look at somebody and say, if you don't love Dear McGavin, then I don't love you. Because come on, what is wrong with you? And no, I love that scene too, especially just the, the, the little, it's like the little touches where the way he kind of puts his arm around Roger too. Like, it's like this weird familiar kind of touch, but also knowing what we know. It's also very controlling and patronizing. It's, he's so good. And uh, in the Norwegian cut, one of the extra scenes we get, a little more of his character. And those were some of my favorite of the extra scenes in that cut was the one, the one with him. And we've got one coming up later with uh, Dick Miller, another character actor, Jim. And and I got to be honest, I've never seen Kolchak. Mike, is Kolchak something you would recommend? Just the 2005 version with uh, Stuart. um, Oh God. Oddly enough, I've seen like three episodes of that when it aired, but I never saw the original. Frankly, Check out the Kolchak TV movie, the 1972 movie. It will change your life. It's fantastic. Well, then also just want to give a momentary shout out to Christopher Mills, one of my friends who wrote some of the Kolchak comic books. Nice. Now, if only the publisher of the Kolchak comic books would ever fucking answer me, I would have them on the uh, the podcast. But sorry, that's a whole other thing. We talked about how he's controlling when it comes to the way that he holds on to Treat Williams, the way that he is so patronizing to Claire Kirkconnell as uh, Rebecca. Oh my God. It just, it makes my skin crawl, but in a good way, because it's just like, especially like I said, on that second viewing, when you know what a sleazebag he is, and it's like, oh yeah, no wonder he's being so patronizing to her. But in the first round, when you see it, it's just like, Wow. Okay. Again, this is 1988, and you can get away with talking to your female co-workers this way. We all make mistakes, Dr. Smithers. Dr. McNabb, I am not in the habit of signing a death certificate for someone who just doesn't feel well. Well, I would hope not. But the fact remains that either you screwed up or these two boys got up after you were done and strolled out of here. I never forget a body, Dr. Well, in five years, she'll be damn good, but right now she's too quick to jump to fanciful conclusions without really digging for the truth. The worst, but also kind of my favorite, because I think everybody's had, like, an asshole boss like this at some point, is, like, when she walks through and he's like, she'll be good in five years. Right. Like, what a, oh, dick. Like, come on, (laughs) what a dick. She's too headstrong right now and jumps to the wild conclusions, which is also ironic coming from Kolchak. Ah. But yeah, and she's a really, you know, she's a good character because she's, you know, even though we do get an allusion to, like, her and Roger at one point had had a thing. I'm glad that they didn't go in, like, kind of a too cheesy route with her. Like, she's just, she's a good, smart character who's basically kind of gets the plot going by kind of being like, you know, like, oh, this body had surgery. Like, no, this is, this is an autopsy. You know, I did the autopsy, and yet they came back to life. And that's when things start really getting good, because you're like, oh. That's a great hook for a story, yeah. 
Well, when you think about it, she's the smartest character in this whole movie. Even though Doug and, and Roger go and do the police work, she's the one that figures out, okay, these bodies have had a autopsy before. I did this. Look at, I actually took pictures. Here are the pictures. Here's your proof. Uh, but then she's also the one who figures out, oh, this is a machine that can resurrect people. So like you said, she gets the plot going. She's the person who really knows this stuff. Now, I would be a little bit more curious if I resurrected a body. I would probably want to study Roger a little bit more for science. But at the same time, it is an homage to DOA, and now he has to solve his own murder. So, well, we kind of have to go that route. I'm so glad I finally watched DOA and prep for this. That was that was a hell of a movie. Isn't that great? I mean, God, that Dennis Quaid, he can really act. I almost did. Well, I almost did. I just didn't have time to. But I, the, the Edmund O'Brien one was was really good. And you can, I, I definitely like all the parallels. They use it well without just being a being a complete ripoff of it. Well, there are a lot of movies that use this whole idea of investigating. They riff it. They riff it in their own direction. They're either investigating a crime that they could be have uh, accused of committing such as the big clock or no way out which is a remake or out of time which was an uncredited all alfred hitchcock movies solving the crime of which you have been accused wrongly or there's the whole you know racing against the clock thing i mean the crank movies were this whole idea of racing against the clock and trying to save yourself and everybody knows that those are gifts to cinema i like that Rebecca has this affection for Roger, but yeah, to your point that it doesn't overshadow what's going on with them and that it just becomes more of a platonic relationship. And then that leaves him open for Randy James, the PR person from Dante Chemicals, where they go off to next looking for their next clue. Yeah, I kind of like that odd three-way relationship there where it's, you can tell he cares for Rebecca. But he's still also keeping her at a distance. I think, I think, you know, they, they've mentioned that, you know, he's a cop who's kind of got a death wish. He's, a, he's reckless. He kind of throws himself out there. I don't think he wants to leave anyone behind like that. And, you know, if he were to die, she would be the person whose table he would end up on, which he does. She genuinely has feelings for him that she's feeling hurt that he won't allow that connection to be explored and then and then randy it's kind of this interesting separate relationship that develops even though he still has this bond with rebecca and and we can get into that more when we get to randy but yeah well and randy is for all intents and purposes she's a femme fatale though she's not at the same time which is an interesting way to play it and it's something i actually had to kind of think about especially seeing um the main theatrical cut there's really not as much of a romance I think kind of angle between uh, Roger and Randy. It's a light bond, which in some ways I kind of think worked better than seeing than when I saw, I don't know. I wasn't sure if I'm still not sure if I really buy the romance between them, though the deleted scene that we'll talk about that I can't wait to talk about because it's so good. <laughs> like the romance in that one, I think actually worked really well because it's more just like these two sort of lonely souls kind of aspect as opposed to being like, Hey, you're good looking. I'm good looking. It's an action movie in the 80s, baby. Come on. You know, <laughs> it's kind of, I felt, but, but they didn't go. I mean, it's not as ridiculous as other films. And um, and actually kind of speaking to that and going back to the whole Treat Williams thing and the whole buddy cop thing is he's, he's a cool, his performance is such a nice kind of refreshing take. Because I think with the more sort of jocular 
sort of actor, which we get jocular, we got plenty of jocular with Piscopo, <laughs> but because initially you almost think Roger's going to be the straight guy, because that's normally how the dynamic is. The funny guy with the slight mullet is going to be the crazy guy. <laughs> and, but then Roger, yeah, he has more of a death wish, but it's almost more serious. And then when he's actually ends up being dead and resurrected, it's, I don't know. He just brings like so much gravitas to this and really just, you know, this film is, I think a much fresher take on this genre that it gets credit for. Yeah. And that's, what's interesting is that Doug is played kind of as the kind of looser wilder guy who, deflects from situations with humor, but he's also very cautious. Whereas Roger is kind of the more button straight, button up straight laced guy who's the more reckless. And also I kind of like that subversion that Doug is the one who sneaks into the lab. So you expect that whatever happens in there is going to happen to him, but it ends up flipping around and happening to Roger. I even like that uh, idea going all the way back to the very beginning of this movie when they're talking about their outfits and that, Piscopo is dressed super casually and Roger is dressed with a tie and a jacket. And so he looks that, you know, you call them buttoned up. He is literally buttoned up in this movie, but then he has the line like, Oh, you didn't tell me that we could dress casual. And he ends up wearing that outfit through at least the first half of the movie till it gets all shot up. But he is literally buttoned up and he looks that role so that he isn't that role helps also with that subversion because yeah, Piscopo is dressed very sloppily and you know eventually he has to show off his arm so we got to get rid of that uh that the the sleeves on the t-shirt somehow one wears a necktie the other wears a neck stain i i just think it's amazing that that he never we never see him in a sleeveless like fishnet shirt god yeah that would have been perfect yeah i was hoping to see that in a deleted scene but uh that was right during the commentary where they were like so during the the end scene why didn't we have him take his shirt off he would have been up for it. I know he would have. In a, in a heartbeat. He would have been like, uh, so Speedo, right, guys? Speedo? You want me to, they're like, no, no, he didn't die in a Speedo. You need to put some pants on, sir. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Mike, you mentioned the scene where Doug opens up the, you know, the, the high security room and we get our first really badass special effects. And I believe in, in your notes, Mike, give it as fat zombie biker, which is completely accurate. He looks like something out of the game Doom. You guys remember Doom? Like the first person shooter, but Doom was awesome. He looks like some badass, like end, like end level, like guy you got to kill. Like he is amazing looking. I love this zombie so much. He looks like, like, I don't know if like a giant bull had sex with like, pig pen from grateful dead while like sunny bargers watching and this man is the unholy love child of that union i please no hell's angels come after me for that i'm sorry mr barger it's hard to go back and look at those movies where it was this really great interesting cult film but they just had to slip in that harry knowles cameo by the logic of all the creatures in this film i have no idea what the three faces how that happened but it's still a really cool design yeah, it looks fantastic in that belly that they put on this thing. It looks great. I mean, this fat suit is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, those those faces that look kind of like they're smeared across. It's almost like something out of the thing. You know, it looks really good. Well, we should probably go ahead and mention Steve Johnson, who did the creature effects in this. Oh, so good. All of his effects in this, I really enjoy. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll get to the to the Asian deli when we get there. But I mean, like... 
One thing that's on the DVD is there was an extension of the autopsy room sequence, even beyond what was in the Hungarian one, where you get to see the, the, the gore effects a lot more. Uh, if you have the one guy who's all blown to pieces. And then the, the other one, we don't see the full effect. What was, Treat Williams was supposed to take out one of the guys by like hitting him with the car and running the car over his head. And there's a few stills of it in one of the Fangoria articles where it's this kind of gel head that they created where it's not to, it's not supposed to explode like a watermelon. It was meant to just kind of crush in. Like if you shove your thumb in a grape and then the, the body in the autopsy room just has, it's still has the face, but it's all like caved in. Yeah, Steve Johnson was not using a trauma Crenshaw melon. No, and that's what I love is that his designs are really striking, but there's also a lot of realism to them. They 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 have this kind of gritty, rotting, realistic look to them, even even when they're going fantastical. As Roger, who eventually, you know, you you said that he suffocates and dies in a very horrific scene. I mean, the idea of suffocation, the way that they have it set up, is just really it really makes me empathize with him just the way that they shoot it and it's such a horrible way to go um and it just feels like you know he was that doug was just a you know second too late and really wish that he had gotten there in time but there was no way that he could save him but when he comes back to life when roger comes back to life through the resurrection machine that they have which is behind where all these zombies the fat zombie biker the zombies that are uh robbing the jewelry store when they bring him back to life they start he starts to decompose not necessarily right away and they could have gone the uh, American Werewolf in London route, the Griffin Dunn route, or what they ended up doing was almost the Brundlefly route, because he just starts to look like he is falling apart, which I think that those makeup effects, I mean, we talked about the fly a few months ago, those makeup effects in there are fantastic, and I think that these uh, in uh, Dead Heat are, are just as good. I, I know the director in the commentary talked about there's this one moment where you suddenly see him and like some time has passed and his skin is just all mottled and, and, and graying. And I know the director says that he wished that we, they had transitioned a little more, but I'm like, it's more striking to just suddenly be hit with it. To just suddenly be like, only a little bit of time has passed and already he's changed so visibly. Yeah, the first transformation, I don't necessarily see. Like when he suddenly is like, oh my God, I have to go get some makeup. And I'm like... I don't know if it's just my VHS or my DVD, but I'm like, uh, I don't really see what's wrong, but okay, that's fine. But yeah, I agree. There's times where he's got like really dark circles under his eyes and then the next shot he won't have it, but it's like, that's fine. I'm okay with this. Well, and one of the other bits on the DVD was that scene where he opens up his shirt when, while Rebecca was investigating him and you just see the gray decomposition with all the bullet holes in him. That, that scene went on longer with them, like actually like poking at the holes and her sloshing his rotting organs around inside and, and just realizing you are, you are falling apart. <laughs> For anybody that is a fan of practical effects, like that alone, you should see this movie. Like the Steve Johnson, whose work's always great. Like you guys said, he, him and his crew did a beautiful job with this movie. And I kind of, it makes you like, it makes you kind of wish that cinema would go back. To, to this because it's like these effects still look good they're still effective there's still moments if i could speak for all of us as the group i mean you know 
we were probably monster kids that grew up being like, oh my God, look at how gory this movie. This is so gross. This is awesome. Let me go show, show my friends, you know, whether it's like Dead Alive or Fulci or whatever. Uh, but this film, some of the effects have that kind of power where you're, you still kind of feel that sort of visceral, like, ooh. And they look great and they're creative on top of that. Like, it's, it's not just gross to be gross. It's really colorful and inventive. It almost makes me think of some of the more gory or kind of like Japanese uh, or mangas, like particularly by uh, an artist named Hino, who also worked on like the guinea pig series, which is a completely other, that's a totally completely different bag of fish than this, but it, but it has that same kind of like inventiveness, which I, I think is so striking. Bag of fish. Did you say bag of fish? I'm pretty sure that was the third guinea pig film. Well, I was just going to bring up how many fucking fish are in this movie. This movie is just lousy with fish. They are everywhere. That should have been on the poster. Dead heat. It's lousy with fish. No, and that was something interesting that they also brought up on the commentary was that they they intentionally wanted to create this motif of fish and dead fish and dying fish and using it as this kind of metaphor for the characters. Because they've got the fish that are, what, in agar in uh, Rebecca's office. Uh, they've got, I mean, Randy's house has, I don't know how many fish tanks in there. And, yeah, one of them gets shot to hell. And then there are all the dead fish in the uh, delicatessen scene. It's just like, my God, there are so many fish. And that, that Piscopo, spoilers, dies in a fish tank. It's just like, oh, my God, there are fish everywhere in here. Like kind of a nice little statement on the precariousness of human life, because, you know, that's always the running gag with fish is that they never live long enough. And Randy even says that, you know, these are my favorites. They never they never stay alive. I can never keep them alive long enough. Well, it's that's kind of like kind of a cool, smart thing with this film. It's sort of I mean, they never go super heavy with it. But it's there enough to show, like, I think some intelligence where it's just this, uh, even with, you know, at one point we see Roger having kind of a freak out after reading a bunch of obituaries and just realizing, shit, you know, there's so much you want to do with your time. And, you know, that's the thing, like, it's one of the things in life we don't really get much of a guarantee on. But it's a funny movie, so nobody be put off by that. It's yeah. not a super downer. <laughs> well, what I like is that it, it juggles its tones well. It's funny. It's exciting. It's got all this funny gore and all stuff. But it is also very sad. And and what I like about the gore effects, almost with their realism, is that there is this desperation to them, too, where all these characters that are decaying, all of them have very limited time. And and it's like, just, you can, like, even, even like, the goon zombies, it's like, they're not going to have much longer to be around, you know? And they have this desperation to do this final thing in the hopes that maybe they'll get some more time. Yeah, I'm always curious about the motivation. Like when the two goon zombies show up at Randy's house when they're there talking with her and watching the videotape of Vincent Price, it's just like, okay, what are you guys getting paid or what's going on? Are you being mind controlled? Yeah, they have the updates to the machine now where it can actually extend life to to like beyond like 16 hours or something like that. So I'm betting you they resurrect someone and say, all right, you go do this thing for me and you come back, I'll give you some more time. Because it looks like the one zombie from uh, Night of the Comet is back in this movie, though I think it's a taller version of him. That black guy, he is so freaking tall, and I love the height disparity between him and the little white guy and when they're going after uh, Roger and Doug in this scene. And I love how they're making use of he actually has missing teeth and everything. What I'd like, too, that Roger gets gets to use his zombie power and hide out in the jacuzzi for, like, five minutes because he doesn't have to breathe. Well, he's, n- he's now filled with air holes. That 
one, that scene actually does does lead to one of the one-liners that doesn't land, in my opinion. My least favorite one where it's like, wow, you you held your breath, you're underwater for five minutes. Can you teach my girlfriend how to do that? It's a condition, he can't help it. Like, I'm confused. Like, she's got nostrils. Is this an oral sex joke? Like, it's an oral whatever. sex joke, yes. yeah. It's stupid. And let's be honest, he doesn't actually have a girlfriend. It's Manuela. I knew a guy that would say that if he was single, he'd just tell people, oh, I'm Danny Manuela, and that was his name for his hand. Well, her name is Georgina Glass. She lives in Canada. Sure, Dan. There's a couple good shock scares in here. There's the one right around this time where Roger is, uh, well, he's brushing his hair and seeing that all of his hair is falling out. And when he puts the brush back in the uh, medicine cabinet and closes the door, that corpse that's in the mirror, which looks like it's right out of life force to me. And that that and the music uh, sting at that point really scared the shit out of me. At least it didn't keep going into like a poltergeist scene. Which it could have, but I'm glad that they didn't. No, that's that's a, that it is effective. It's kind of nice to see, like when you revisit some of these movies. Actually, Life Force, in addition to that, is a movie that has great jump scares, and it's it's refreshing to see a time when films actually had effective jump scares. Because now it's like it's so it's so cliche that I mean you expect it, so it, it works against itself. But um, but obviously, when done well, it's still good. Are you talking about Bloomhouse? I haven't seen a single James Wan film outside of Aquaman. Can we all agree that Key Luke as Mr. Thule and Toro Tanaka as the Butcher are pretty freaking awesome? Oh, you want to talk about a power team of character actors. Like, Key Luke, it, I, I mean, I'm just going to assume everybody listening knows who he is, because he's a legend, and he's awesome. And Tanaka, or excuse me, Professor Toro Tanaka, <laughs> which is how he's credited, uh, in addition to being a great kind of both physically and presence-wise heavy uh, in cinema, was also a professional wrestler and uh, and wrestled for the WWWF, which is not the WWF, but this is Vince McMahon's senior promotion. And so for, so for all of you old-school wrestling fans like myself, this is impressive. Not to be confused with Pat Tanaka, who was a WWF wrestler, though. So. My only issue with Key Luke is he just doesn't get much to do. It's kind of cool seeing him pop up, but he's 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 kind of there so briefly, and then is there so briefly again at the end that I, I'd kind of just want more of his character being fleshed out a bit. I like I love Tanaka though. I love Tanaka gets that great scene where he's chopping everything and then chops the badge, and and then I love the way that he goes out with one hit and they go, hey, he went down with one shot. Well, not everyone's a zombie. That was one of my favorite bits. And this whole scene in the butcher shop, I mean, it walks that line between horrific and comedic so well. I mean, th- this is Sam Raimi territory that we're getting into in this one, where this is shunting for whatever reason, for whatever reason, Key Luke has a machine in his butcher shop that is basically kind of a version of the resurrection machine. Though it doesn't affect Roger, we're going to have to forget that, because you can't be resurrected twice. And it resurrects all of these animals uh, that are there in the butcher shop. All of the duck heads and the liver of something become resurrected. The pig that has been roasted. I mean, there are just... Oh, it is so gross and so funny all at the same time. I, again, coming into this movie cold, I never knew about this sequence. 
when I was reading the script, I literally like my jaw dropped when I was reading that the descriptions of this on the page. And I'm like, oh my God, it, this is going to be so hard to pull off. I hope they pull this off. Holy crap, did they pull it off. It is a showstopper of a sequence. You know, Mike, I'm glad you mentioned the liver because <laughs> my, uh, my husband was telling me uh, while over the weekend while I was prepping my notes for this uh, that he uh, was in a punk band. And they only ever did two songs. And one of them, I can't remember what the other one was called, but the other one that was inspired directly from the scene. And what you alluded to was called Liver of Doom. So in my notes, I refer to it as the Liver of Doom, because I cannot think of a better description of this. Uh, this scene, by the way, if if you are a vegetarian, like some of us, like myself, I'm not squicked out by meat, but holy shit, some of this was, like, hilarious, and some of it, I was just like, oh, like, oh, it bothered me, really. I was like, not that the duck heads made me sad, and then that headless giant steer Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. The way it clunks into the room. Oh. Mm -hmm. No. I was like, hell no. (laughs) But I was like, hell yes, at the same time, because it was so... That it, it's amazing. You guys nailed it. It's hilarious, but at the same time, it's so disgusting and effectively disgusting. Like that, it's 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 absolutely riveting. Like I, again, like why isn't this film a bigger cult classic? This scene alone, yeah. First time I ever saw Return of the Living Dead, of all the things that are in that movie, the tar man, you know, uh, Linnea Quigley and her breasts, all of that stuff, it was the half dogs coming to life that really stuck with me for all those years. So watching this scene, I was really reminded of those stupid half dogs, just because it's like, yeah, they are tissue and they're being reanimated and they're in a horrible position and here's the same thing yeah that fucking corpse uh cow corpse coming out and just like kind of shuffling along and it looks like whoever's in that thing or maybe it's a puppet but i think there was somebody it was someone in there on stilts oh teetering around on stilts was like oh my god this is oh i can't even imagine being in that cow costume because it just is so gross and then the way that it uses the, the split open torso as like a giant mouth to engulf Treat Williams. No, this is honestly the this thing that actually came most to mind while I was watching that is you race her head with not only the chickens, but the baby. And like even just the scenes where it's like they, they take out the machine and you see the, the chicken writhing on the ground that's been chopped into pieces and all the pieces are writhing in separate directions. Or even later when they just turn on the little duck head that's that's activated on the board. That bothered me so much. It's funny you mentioned Return of the Living Dead, Mike, because uh, the half dogs, my favorite of that is actually the butterfly specimen. Mm-hmm. Oh. Where it's like, so we have zombie butterflies in that universe. And I just think that's uh, that's one of the many gifts we get with that movie. Oh, what's going to emerge next from that cocoon? Well, unfortunately, they, I don't think they go into a cocoon after they're a butterfly, but I don't have time for a botany lesson right now. Caterpillar into chrysalis or pupa. From thence into beauty. Have we had a story where like an entire ecosystem zombifies? Like the insects, like all, all the animals, all the insects, all the plants start to zombify. And how do you possibly survive when the entire environment has turned against you like that? Right. Yeah, because you start getting like zombie spores or like a dandelion that's a zombie and the little white things float away. You know, what's weird is the closest we've had to that at least to my immediate memory, is 
two films, and one is Chud 2, but the Chud, because the poodle becomes a zombie or a Chud, because Garrett Graham as Bud bites the poodle because he's hungry, and he's Garrett Graham and he's fucking rules, and he should be in everything. I love him. This is a movie I watched a lot as a kid, <laughs> which might explain some things, but uh, <laughs> it wasn't there. I never saw it, but wasn't there like some. Um, Oh, the happening? Shyamalan. I love that I can I can talk about Bud Two or Chud Two, but the Chud with like clarity, and then I'm like, oh, that one dude in Hollywood that guy. Oh yeah, Shyamalan. But uh, didn't he have a film where like the trees are killing people? Yeah, I heard that movie was terrible. What? No. I think if I think if we take the best parts of like Chud Two and merged it with your idea and just ignored the happening and put Garrett Graham in it. I'm sold. I will crowdfund this. I want to take my idea and use it for a Smurfs reboot. So when you say the best parts of Chud 2, you're talking about the entire movie. Oh, so eventually they figure out that they need to investigate this guy, Loudermilk. He is the Vincent Price character that I alluded to before. And he is... Well, Randy says, he's my father. And then she says, he's my brother. And then he then treat William slaps her and then she goes, he's my father and he slaps her. And then he's my brother. He's my brother and my father. He's my dope dealer resurrectionist. So like I said, she's a liar. She uh, is the femme fatale though. She doesn't necessarily lead him into any worse waters of anything. She kind of helps him solve a lot of things. So it's a weird femme fatale situation that she just constantly is lying and it changes the way that we think about things as we go through the movie. But you know, it's, it's okay. She's not dangerous, I suppose. Um, but they're investigating louder milk and they are figuring out that there's something going on with this whole idea of rich people and that they want to stay alive forever, which at the end of the day is what this movie is all about. And then Roger has an existential crisis. You've mentioned the library. They go to the library and he's reading obituaries and reading about all these other rich people who have recently died. And he's thinking, okay, these are maybe other potential people that will be resurrected. But I think we find out later on that they were more promised to be resurrected and then robbed by the McNabb character, the Darren McGavin character, which is something that we don't necessarily see on screen, but I think we just kind of figure it out. And then also there's the whole thing about how does he have this huge house and the, 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 the rings and all this money and stuff. And it's because he's been robbing old uh, people and then uh, tricking them into thinking they were going to live forever. With Randy, one of my other issues with this film is I think her character has a few few too many twists to the point where it doesn't all quite hold together story-wise. Um, there's a well, lot about her character that I like. Yeah, <laughs> literally. I, I think there's just like th – there's ways that you could have fine-tuned that a little bit more. But it's – you didn't need the whole daughter angle. You didn't need all that stuff. But you just have to be sure for the company. This was a guy who gave her this opportunity. Find out that there was this other history. She's a zombie. That's all you really need. But I also do like the whole rich people plot. You never really know, is the whole immortality thing real in the end or not? Because Loudermilk's back, but is he back permanently? We don't know. Or did he even die? I mean, I guess we're supposed to believe that he died, but we could just as easily believe that he faked his own death. See, I wondered that too. And that's actually, I think this is where the benefit of seeing the Norwegian 
cut does come in handy because uh, we see, you know, we see a scene where Roger and Randy go to the crypt. Yeah. And most of the crypt scenes in the the theatrical cut, but one of the things missing from it is like at one point, like a corpse like comes out of the wall, like a dead corpse. And he's like, Oh, it's louder milk. But the thing is like louder milk didn't, he died allegedly pretty recently. And the corpse that you see in it is super decayed. Oh yeah. This thing's from the well, the souls. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Cause louder milk, I believe it only uh, supposedly been dead for two weeks. And I mean, yeah, two weeks, there's going to be some, obviously some decomposition, but it's not going to be like a withered mummy. Well, you know, they're having a heat wave. This composed always sweaty. Oh, it's, that's the sweat of having, of, of being a, a swoletarian, of being swole, son, getting them gains. Do you even lift? That whole plot with the crypt, it's, it's weird then if Loudermilk wasn't really killed, then why would he have left the message incriminating the guy that he's still working with? Ooh. That part just doesn't work for me. Yeah, I think they tried to explain it in the audio commentary, and they're like, yeah, well, maybe it was another guy, that they buried another guy, and he somehow ran into Darren McGavin and knew his license plate. Yeah, that, that that's one of those things that I, I loved the script. It was a wonderful read of a script. I think they filmed it well, but I still think it's one of those scripts where it does have things that just don't fit together and like one of my other things is so how do you kill a zombie the film is very inconsistent in how these zombies are dying or not dying that's true yeah do you have to shoot them in the head or just shoot them enough or yeah i mean harry knowles they just hit over the head a bunch of times with a fire extinguisher the the slab of beef they just shot a bunch of times you know the goons they electrocuted the a few of them uh, the one died when he dropped a hand grenade, but Treat Williams didn't die when his, he was in a vehicle that exploded. So it's just, it's like what exactly kills them? Unless, I, I think it would have been more effective if it's just, they just don't die until they just fall apart. If you're the kind of fan that is really, and there are those type of horror fans that get super particular and will have debates about whether zombies should be fast or not. And spoiler alert, they don't exist in reality. So there's not a real answer to that. It's fantasy. And I'm one of those people who it's like, I notice it, but I don't really care because I'm enjoying it. Same, same. No, because I noticed, because, uh, you know, not to jump too far ahead, but eventually we do see uh, Doug get resurrected. And he looks fine. He looks like he just got out of the gym, even though he had been suspended headlong for hours in a water tank. And his face is all gnarly and bloated looking. So, but I'm like, well, fuck it. You know, it's a movie about the dead coming back to life. <laughs> so you could you could roll with the fantasy. You know? And I know from the commentary, the, the makeup that he has in the party sequence was meant to be what they were also going to use in the climax. But Piscopo just kind of shot it down because he didn't want to do it. Oh, wiener. Yeah, it's like Treat Williams is like decked head to toe in in makeup and Piscopo is like, yeah, no. What a weenie. What about that poor guy that was in that that pig, not that pig, but that big steer costume? Exactly, right? Yeah, take one for the team. Well, that's why one of these guys is doing Deep Risings and the other one is stuck in sidekicks. So what did you guys think about the the whole reveal, like the whole thing of, of putting like the phone and letter combination to where... You know, you figure out it's Nav. I thought that was a cool twist. Yeah, I didn't expect that. I mean, I wondered when 
Darren McGavin shows up at one point, and it's just like, you know, I wrote in my notes, like, don't forget, Darren McGavin's in this movie, and he, like, says something smarmy and then leaves, and you see his license plate, and I'm like, oh, body doc, okay. But that was clever. Then I find out, oh, I had to know that, because then that ends up being the code. So I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. There's actually a purpose to that. And I know that from the commentary again, According to Terry Black, that was one of Darren Starr's contributions. Was Originally, it was just the code spelled out his name, but it was Darren Starr who came up with the body doc license plate gag. Darren Starr, who revised the script and then went on to create Sex in the City? And Beverly Hills, uh, Beverly Hills 90210 and Melrose Place. Holy cow. So he did fine. Yes, he did very fine. Yeah, he worked on this and, oh, what was that? The Fred Decker written one where it was like a teenage James Bond movie, If Looks Could Kill, I think. Yeah, Darren Starr was the one who came in and rewrote Fred Decker on that. He kind of had these this this little late 90s, late 80s, early 90s period of script doctoring. And then came Beverly Hills 90210. According to Black on the commentary, Black was still involved from beginning to end with the film. They just brought in Star just to kind of do some little dialogue punch-ups, mostly one-liners, probably why why there's some that are just kind of a little jarring and just kind of feel tagged on. And a lot of the one-liners are a mix of Darren Star and Joe Piscopo just improving on set. But but Black was still involved from beginning to end and, and incorporate a lot of that, those revisions himself. So, yeah, you mentioned before, Heather, that Dick Miller shows up during this crypt scene, and he, unfortunately, is left on the cutting room floor. How dare you do that to Dick Miller? I know. That, that I did not understand. Like, why was that cut out? Because that was, it's not, and not just because it's Dick Miller, but though, seriously, it's Dick Miller. Come on, what's wrong with you people? But also, it's a cute scene, and it just, I don't know, it adds to the flavor of the film. Mm-hmm. And um, one thing, and we can maybe talk about this later in the episode, but, you you know, calling this, this film is a horror comedy in a lot of ways. And that's a very small but kind of interesting subgenre of films that kind of, I think, were at their peak in the 80s, as far as being a lot of them. But, you know, come on, it's it's Dick Miller. Like, Dick Miller, if you have Dick Miller, that's you, you put him in there. I, I would have cut it. Um, well, I mean, to, I'm so sad. Honestly, watching the Norwegian cut, a lot of the stuff that they cut out, it's the film works fine without it. And and I think even in the shorter version, as the story is going along, you need to have this kind of increasing sense of urgency, you know, as, as Roger's losing more and more time. And I think stuff like that slows that down. I think the, the library attack with the zombie. Oh, the library attack. Yeah. Cut that thing right the fuck out. That makes no sense. Especially that they leave the zombie handcuffed in the stacks. And I'm just like, what are you doing? What, how's the librarian going to handle that? Yeah. And looking at other stuff that was deleted too, it's kind of like, I, I think I wish that more of the gore had been restored because I know they had a lot of MPAA fights, but a lot of the scenes that were cut, it's, I, I can see why, just just for pacing reasons. And the Dick Miller scene is—it's it's a fun scene. It's a lovely scene. Dick Miller's always wonderful, but it doesn't really contribute anything. It does just kind of slow things down. I'm sure you got a good reason for being here. I'm just dying to hear it. I'm Detective Roger Mortis, LAPD. Of course, I can talk about a close. I'm investigating a murder. Arthur P. Loudermilk was involved. So you just dropped by to question him, huh? I got a warrant or something. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. Signed by a former United States president. Ooh. Listen, uh, anybody else you want to drop in on, I'll get you group discount. Thanks anyway, we gotta be going. Hey, you don't have to run off. Loudermilk's calendar is wide open. Are you always this hilarious? 
What do you want for 50 bucks? Eddie Murphy? Hey, Don Ho. Whose murder are you investigating? Mine. Though I hate to admit it, I will say that you are completely right because it really it adds nothing. It's a couple one-liners, but I just respect the man so much that I, I always enjoy seeing him show up. Oh, I always loved Dick Miller. And and even stuff like the the leading up to we'll get to the, the death party scene, but the whole kind of romance moment between him and Randy. I think you mentioned earlier, Heather, that I think the theatrical cut works a little better without that being a romance. It, it puts more of a spotlight on his relationship with Rebecca and how much is lost over the course of the movie and that he no longer has time to be with Rebecca and then ultimately loses Rebecca. And I think that makes her loss even more poignant if you're not having the secondary romance with Randy. Yeah, that and and I will say I agree with you for most of the deleted scenes. I think, you know, you can see the theatrical cut and not really miss anything, I think, major. The Actually, of all the scenes, the excise that I've seen, uh, and now I think is as good as time as any to talk about my favorite scene, which is the death day sequence. This is a deleted scene. This is not part of the Norwegian cut, but uh, it's amazing. And, and actually in the context, because you you get to kind of give anybody listening who hasn't seen it a setup, is you know, Roger and Randy are on the couch and they have kind of a heart dart about, about kind of talking about death. Of course, we don't have the, the big spoiler yet with her character, which we'll get to in a minute. But um, but it's it's kind of there's a somberness and a sweetness to it, and that was an instance where I could kind of buy the romance, the best because it's just more about just two people trying to comfort each other in a very bizarre and morbid situation. Where to me, like the rest of it, uh, like in the Norwegian cut, the the romance just to me came out of nowhere because they just they just kind of banter. There's not really like a huge chemistry. Or anything like that, that I could buy them being like all of a sudden like, hey, you know, yeah, let's let's make out. But <laughs> I agree. It is a it is a well done scene. It is a very nice scene between the two. It's weird to me that in the Norwegian cut that they do have that dream sequence that happens in this place, which would have been where that dream sequence fit in. You know, it's like, it's interesting that the Norwegian cut uh, diverges here and they have a little bit more of, you know, Roger um, watching the fish in the apartment and then saying, you know, uh, uh, thinking about Doug saying that no one has more time than him. Sorry, I'm screwing it up. But just him there thinking about these things, and that would have been exactly where this death day scene fit in. And then, yeah, I expected the death day scene to just be the party, so I was surprised there was so much before that that included them talking to each other. And again, thinking about how they relate to one another, and once you realize, oh yeah, Randy is dead as well, watching that scene a second time really adds a lot to it. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful scene. And it also leads because Mike, you're talking about it is interesting. The Norwegian cut has a variation of the, the dream sequence. But in that version, they're just using clips of footage you've already seen. And the deleted scene leads to this amazing, oh, just scene where he ends up going to a death day party thrown for him by uh, by zombie Doug. And it's funny because it's all kind of is like a little bit of Leron because, you know, early on in the movie, uh, before I think any, either one of them are dead, Doug makes a joke about having a death day party as opposed to a birthday party. Like if you knew exactly when you were going to die. And so, and like get Roger's mother's there, Rebecca's there, uh, yeah, Randy's there. And then there's this giant Robert cake, Picardo is out- there. 
Robert Picardo. How could I forget? Thank you. <laughs> I love Picardo. What a what a gem. Uh, Dick Miller is unfortunately not there, no. but you know, you take what you get in life. And but and Terry is, Black is there apparently. So this was his big scene. But a zombie go-go dancer stripper pops out of the cake. Now I wish we had a better quality version of this deleted scene because the deleted scene the print is rough it's kind of in latrino vision a little bit but at least we have it and um the the person operating the puppet because they use this cool puppet for it, is no other none other than linnea quigley who we mentioned earlier i had found a clip to, that i sent to mike and noel that i remember seeing year actually also back when i was a kid that this i did rent was uh a compilation of the This Is Horror, the Stephen King series. Mm. And they had a they had on that a making of where they showed uh, Steve Johnson working with Linnea with the puppet. And it's cool to see. It's too bad that that didn't end up in it. For you trivia hounds, at one point, uh, Johnson and Quigley were married. Uh, they're no longer married now. But, um, but talk about a power couple of uh, cult horror right there. But it's, it's such a cool, like, fun sequence. And, I mean... It's it's too bad because it, ha- it has kind of all the flavors of this film that make it work because you have the comedy and the bizarre sort of creativity with the effects. And you also have like kind of some good emotional uh, and thoughtful touches, too. Just has me thinking of like you could do like a soap dish style thing where it's Heather Langenkamp and her makeup effects husband versus Linnea Quigley and her and her makeup effects husband competing on a film set to try to outdo one another. I want that horror comedy. My thing about the party scene is I just don't feel it goes far enough. It just kind of, it, it happens. And the go-go dancer is, is, is a nice puppet, but it, it, I don't, again, I don't think it really adds anything. And I almost, I almost wish either it had gone crazier, like just a whole party of dead people, like go full, you know, Asian delicatessen or have it be he's starting to drift off and cross over. And it's like literally like he's, his mind is starting to shut down. You know, he's dying and, and he almost pulls himself back out of it. I, I almost wish it had been more of a, a story beat instead of just a thing that happens. Yeah. The whole idea of his mother being there and his dad, I was just like, wouldn't it be better if those two were dead already? Like, like, like if it had become like the ending of all that jazz, you know? I, I could see Doug, though, inviting. Roger's parents and being like, oh, by the way, here's this, like, the stripper popping out a cake with her, her little undead boobies. It's so dumb. I just feel it's it's something, it just needed a different approach to really work. I, my big thing about dream sequences is they usually just kind of stop the story for something that, for just, like, here's something interesting. And it, it's it's interesting, but it just, it does stop the story again during a point of immediacy where the character is kind of just defeated at the moment and then has to rally again. Well, and he's even more defeated because of the next scene. And I think to your point, it would have been almost, and this is going to sound weird, but almost too many gore effects happening right in a row because we would have gone from the death day thing with Linnea Quigley as the zombie go-go dancer to cut to the bathroom. And I mean, it is very quick that we end up seeing Randy disintegrate and go away. I mean, it's a great sequence. That's a big twist that happens out of nowhere. Yeah. So I think it would have been a little too much had those two things been butted right up against each other because yeah, her thing and her disintegration, it's such a good sequence. And you know, you talked about the shunting, the way that her face looks when it's melting off of her, her body, it looks so good. 
And what was it? That was another one of the deleted scenes on the DVD. Was and it, they, they, it was just extended. I just like held on the gore shots a little longer. I think it still works fine in the version that it has. One of the interesting things is you actually get to see the original plate of the actress and makeup against a black felt background. For you know, there's that shot where when she falls and her head rolls off, and you have that shot of her face dissolving off of the skull. Yeah, that's nice. Even though some people might quibble that you can't speak without vocal cords like the head does, but who cares? They're reanimated vocal cords. And you know, I don't mind there being a slight fantastical element to things, because one, one, one thing that I kind of missed from the script with the reanimation machines is, you know, you still have that line of, well, what about the soul? And, and Rebecca has that line. Well, well, they've apparently found a way around that too. In the script, like the resurrection scene, you would actually get this physical soul would kind of like be pulled in out, out of the ether, kind of like in a Ghostbusters trap and then like forced back down into the body. And that was just an interesting visual every time they would run that is like this, this kind of writhing, glowing figure would appear above the body and be pushed down into it. So I don't mind there being a slight fan- fantasy to it, but it, it's it's a very sad end for the the Randy character. I, I think they didn't quite work out the beats of her actual story and backstory and all that stuff well enough. But I, I still think it, it's, again, a very good end for, you know, the femme fatale who turns out to not be evil, but still but still becomes like an ultimate victim to the situation. She's almost like a Gloria Graham or something where she's uh, the, the she's not necessarily the mall, but she's a bad girl. But then she does the right thing at the end. It's kind of like her in Big Heat or something where it's just like, OK, I will help you out, Glenn Ford. And she eventually she helps out Roger with his stuff and then she gets screwed in the end. And it's almost the same thing. It's almost the hot pot of coffee being poured on her face. Well, like we've been alluding to, this is a detective story, and things begin to wrap up here. We begin to see, now that we know that McNabb, the Darren McGavin character, is in on it, things fall more into place. So then we get to see him interact with Key Luke. We get to see, uh, you know, there's the unnecessary uh, death scene where they should have just shot him, but instead they put him in an ambulance and they hope that he will turn to goo. Oh, but remember, how do you kill a zombie, Mike? Just have to wait, I guess. Just time. In this case, it's less than 12 hours, I think, that he's got. And at this point, he probably just has about like three or four left. Here's the other question I have about the Randy character, just before we keep going into that, is what do you think the timeline was on her resurrection? Like, was she? did all this happen to her like the day before? Did, did she only have like 12 to 16 hours? Has she been resurrected for a longer period of time? You know, it's it's that that's the the timeline of that also just never quite held together for me. Well, that's the other thing to your point from earlier is do they have the ability to bring you back for longer? Because that's what Vincent Price starts selling at the end is, yeah, we figured this out. I can keep you alive forever. And it's like, OK, well, that probably works for you. I mean, I think there's a, a price attached to that. Well, half your fortune. But yeah, did they use like a lower setting on her <laughs> and just say, okay, you've got a week to go. Cause yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily believe like she came into work that morning, having been resurrected the night before. No. One thing I kind of wondered with her is that as opposed to a lot of the other characters that you see get resurrected, which are all, you know, a lot of them are just kind of criminals that they're just using, you know, basically to get a means to an end and then die. Um, you know, the Vincent Price character obviously has some affection for her. Yeah. And 
one, and this may be a reach, um, and you both have read the script, I have not, admittedly, is, but one way I kind of took that was maybe, like, maybe, you know, she she bought herself some time being in those graces, but the minute she started kind of actually helping them out, and, you know, because presumably the goons wouldn't kill her, they're, they're there mainly for, you know, Doug and Roger, but she helps them. And she plays along, you know, does she, is she kind of sacrificing more time she could have had by doing that? We never know. But, um, but that's kind of how I took it. I mean, you know, I sometimes don't mind if movies, you know, I almost in some ways prefer it sometimes if movies don't explain certain things because it's kind of fun for your imagination to be like, ooh, maybe it could be this, maybe it could be that. It's one of those ones though where my imagination just can't quite think of anything. Unless she was, because, you know, the goons are, you know, meant to have short spans. Unless she was one of, maybe there's other people in the offices. Like, we are, we also see zombie guards who are still in, like, full suits and stuff. What if there are other people in the office who were experiments for the lengthening? And it's like, well, we find this person in a drug clinic. Like, like the, the goons, it doesn't matter how torn up their bodies are, because they're literally just pulled off of morgue slabs. Um, where she, like, died in a drug clinic. Uh, of an overdose so her body is more together so they want someone who is is a little more i don't want to say who is not already decaying that they can try to resurrect and see if it'll last for longer and you know maybe maybe she didn't know if there was a lifespan you know she she's like rachel from blade runner she doesn't know how long she has and then it ends up catching up with her now, I'm glad you made the Blade Runner point because there was some thought of that to, uh, for me as well as far as the whole I want more life, you know, and, and what comes of that and how far are you willing to get more life. So I do want to call out this whole sequence where he ends up crashing the ambulance if for no other reason than to talk about Shane Black, who shows up here, who is maybe five minutes after he worked on predator it looks like he's even got the same glasses on that he had in the predator who's shane black Who, who's that guy he <laughs> he directed a couple things some of them are really good like kiss kiss bang bang that's a really good movie uh i'm not as hot on some of his other films but that one is a really good movie and then he wrote a couple things no, one thing that I, I like is having read a lot of Shane Black's scripts, he has this very snarky, sharp, breezy writing style that, that just kind of whips you along while also kind of having this very fourth wall breaking. Like he, like he, he's sitting in a pitch room, just kind of describing it to you and really pulling you into the scene. And Terry Black's script had a lot of that quality too. It, it, it was a very, the script of this, this read a lot like a Shane Black script and not surprisingly. But this scene, I, I think the other thing I would note about this scene, though, is uh, when we see Roger unzip himself out of a body bag, he is way more gnarly looking because he's just been in an explosion. And I think the makeup, and this may be just me, thought, I think it looks kind of like a cross between like when Jason Patrick becomes a vampire in Lost Boys and also the trickster. Yeah. And the trick from Brain Scan, which was this came that. That I mean, that was like that came out years after Dead Heat. But I was like, when I first saw him, I'm like, dude, he looks like Trickster, but he kind of looks like Jason Patrick. Too. Yeah. And yeah, and he has a Nightbreed feel to him too. Um, oh, completely. But but even before then, like the whole scene where he's locked in this ambulance with Rebecca, this this woman he's been pining for, but also avoiding his feelings for, and now he's been like, you know, soaking in the in the, in the fact that he's not going to have time to be with her, and now she's gone too. 
she's dead too. And he's locked there with her. When he sets the van in motion, just that look on his face that just, I don't, I'm going to just see this through and I don't care anymore. You know, he's not, it's not a defeated look. It's just a kind of crazed. I'm not even thinking about this anymore. Let's just see what happens. Yeah, I like that he is just completely nuts at that point. It shows on his face, and then it's like the the face afterwards matches that attitude. Because, that yeah, that makeup effect on him after that is wild. And you're right, he totally looks like Trickster, especially the hair. The hair is just incredibly insane. I love how he has just that really punked up, just completely badass look to him now but he's also still just kind of charming treat williams i'm like hey how's it going can i have your gun he's so polite he's like the most polite vigilante at this point i love the 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 whole torch zombie guy approaching the cop who's just like freaking out and he just kind of like pulls out his badge and is like hey i'm detective i need your gun need your your gun and your bike and uh doesn't ask for his clothes at least but yeah and then he's off to the races and this whole storming of the Dante pharmaceutical place, I just love it. I, I mean, especially that ridiculous part where he and the other zombie guy are machine gunning each other. <laughs> oh, God, I love that bit. <laughs> oh, it's so wonderful. Oh, God, I laughed. So it's such a great just bit of just black comedy, right? It, it's it's like it's it takes almost like any trope you'd see from an action film in the 80s were definitely like such a steroided era of ridiculous action and action films. And, and thank God for that. But it's just, it's so good. And, uh, and then we get the whole reveal that louder milk is basically, he's got these, like this coterie of old, rich white people that, you know, basically promising them, you know, eternal life and, and all but says, you know, well, rich people deserve it. Oh Yeah. I love this whole, we deserve it because we're rich. You know, poor people die, not us. And in some ways it makes me sad that something, you know, you see a, a bit of, a bit of sort of like good sort of cynical satirism of definitely the Reagan era, the Reagan and Bush era in the eighties and how nothing has changed because a movie that's old and way, way past its age to buy, you know, a beer, Mm-hmm. <laughs> and vote still has a little bit where it's like, well, yeah, we still we're still living there of like the one percent and just this this entitled this tiny handful of people that are rich and outmoded and are dinosaurs, but yet are entitled and still hold that power. And um, yeah, so wow, I mean, think about Dead Heat for being in some ways a very like balls out horror comedy has some really good yeah. fucking insight and intel. Like, oh, it's, it's not, yeah, it's not a, a stupid movie. No. no, no, far from it. Which, which you can't say that about, a, I think most, I would venture to say most horror comedies. I'm not saying all, cause there's this one. And I actually think Return of the Living Dead has some good smart and even occasionally somber, disturbing moments. Uh, but it's a hard balance with horror comedy to get that. The ones that do it are the best, but it's, you know, and then you get Return of the Living Dead too. Yeah, that's a whole other. Dis- <laughs> I don't hate it either. I have I have like mixed bags, but the first one's near perfect. Oh god, yeah. And then I got to say, Vincent Price. I I was a little worried when his first scene was just that 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 videotape 
a, a thing because I'm just like, oh, I know this is like late in Vincent Price's career. Is he just going to be all kind of withered and not doing much? But then, no, he shows up and gives that really great speech there at the end and then has all those great bits of like, kill him. Why can't you kill him? I'll give you money. <laughs> You can live forever. Yeah, no, he really, he really had still had, he still had that energy to him. I love the the stories that they tell on the audio commentary about him coming in wearing his red sneakers and just regaling the cast and crew with stories of Hollywood old and hearing what a sweet man he was. It's just like, oh, that's wonderful. I'm so happy to hear that. I've never heard a bad story about Vincent Price. No. And if you have one, keep it to yourself. Yeah. Thank you. Please, please. I'm jealous of everybody on that set, for the record, just because oh, that man was a legend in every sense of the word. It's, um, yeah, how lucky are we that we get, to, we get to be part of an era of humanity that knows about Vincent Price, at least. With all the trash going on, keep things in perspective, people. We got Vincent Price. And that's pretty fucking sweet. He was the Mr. Rogers of horror. Oh, I love that. It's true. Was he ever on an episode of Mr. Rogers? I need to see the two of them on screen together. I need that oh, wouldn't to be that be thing. great? I loved him on The Muppet Show. Oh, yeah. Oh, I did too. That's, it was like Kermit with the fangs. I loved watching so him cute. cook. Well, speaking of cooking, so we get some cooking <laughs> in this scene, because Doug, as we've alluded to, comes back. And we get the whole, like, sort of thought that because he was brain dead longer, he's easier to control. And, of course, McNabb tries to have him murder Roger. Yeah, that's a nice thing. I I like this whole, kill this guy, would you? And I love how they turn that, yeah. How Roger gets through to him. Yeah, it's really nice. It's a very powerful scene. And again, something that you don't expect here. And the other thing I didn't expect was just how fucking dark this gets. When they are going up to McNabb, and he's shooting both of them, and then rather than... (laughs) letting them get him he shoots himself in the fucking head it's like oh my god and then yeah and then we take it one step farther and then they throw him on the resurrection machine just so they can bring him back so that they can kill him (laughs) right we want to be the ones that kill kill you you can't kill you by resurrecting him twice which makes him a hamster in a microwave that is that is like perfect writing there i loved it so much After that, they end up, you know, both of these guys are dead, and they don't, apparently, I mean, even though I thought they said that uh, Doug has more time, but both of them have a short amount of time, and they pretty much, from what I'm gathering here, they walk off into heaven, and then hearing on the audio commentary was supposed to be like a whole stairway and them going off into heaven, and as it is, it's just a white hallway with some smoke, and they're walking into it. But that wasn't the full story, right? You read the script, and I seem to remember there was a little bit more to that. Well, in the script, it was more just now they went outside, went into a car, and drove off, but it was still the same dialogue, and especially had the the, the final line of, this, this looks to be the end of a beautiful friendship. Well, because I remember Terry Black was saying that it must have been an earlier draft where it ended up like everybody was okay. He was okay. Roger was okay. Doug was okay. It was an early draft where it was kind of like going to be like the death dream. Um, I'm wondering if like in an earlier draft, the death dream was in this position. They moved it to a later spot because it was like, yeah, he shows up. Everyone's okay. Everyone's happy. But then you pull out and you realize you're seeing this image inside the decayed eye of them as they're just sitting there dead. And it's just kind of like their last dream as they're dying i'm glad they ended it the way that they did 
this looks like the end of a beautiful friendship is a perfect one-liner for this. All right, guys, we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. The first is with director Mark Goldblatt, and the second is with writer Terry Black. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. I am thrilled to introduce OVA.TV, the new streaming service for arthouse films, documentaries, and international cinema. Described by the New York Times as a haven for indie gems, Ovid.tv features films such as Claire Denis' Trouble Every Day, Deborah Granick's Stray Dog, and Raul Ruiz's Time Regained. As a special introductory offer for Projection Booth listeners, you can save 50% off the first three months of your subscription. Just head on over to Ovid.tv. That's ovid.tv. Sign up with the coupon code PODCAST and you'll get ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. The offer expires August 31st, so act now. You'll have access to hundreds of films not available on any other platform, which you can start streaming on all of your favorite devices, such as Apple TV and my personal favorite, the Roku. Once again, go over to ovid.tv, ovid.tv, sign up with the coupon code PODCAST, and you'll get ovid.tv for just $3.50 per month for three months. Act now. I don't know how he does it. I mean, the guy does books, he writes reviews, he's on the show every week with me. I'm talking about my humble podcast partner, Mike White from The Projection Booth. Hey, it's Rob St. Mary. I just wanted to let you know, Cinema Detours, Mike's new book is out. It collects a bunch of reviews that he's done over the past decade or so for various places here and there. And you basically want to pick it up, and I'll tell you why. Because some of those older reviews, the movies that you have seen, it's kind of like chatting with an old friend. And then the movies that you haven't seen yet, well, Mike will add about another 100 to 150 movies that you're going to have to see before you die. You can give him a wedgie or something next time you see him and you know, thank him for that one. It's Cinema Detours. You can get it over at our website, projection-booth.com. You can get it at amazon.com, and you can get it in either paper form, if you're old school, or you can get it for your Kindle, your e-reader. So... There's no reason to detour Cinema Detours. From Mike White, and of course, you can always learn more about what we do, about the books, and everything else at projection-booth.com. Hello from Cinema Detroit. We are Metro Detroit's only truly independent cinema, and also the only first-run, seven-day-a-week movie theater in greater downtown. We deliver an eclectic mix of mainstream art, indie, genre, cult and classic movies in the heart of the city like a sommelier choosing wine or a dj mixing a set we handpick our slate of films many of which are exclusive to the metro area the state of michigan or the entire midwest region cinema detroit features a unique setting in a former furniture store and a warm neighborhood atmosphere including always fresh popcorn detroit made fago soda and other locally created treats please visit our website cinemadetroit.org for the latest features and showtimes. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. We look forward to seeing you soon at 4126 3rd Street in the city, 48201. If you listen to Proudly Resents, the cult movie podcast, you would know how to 
properly crush a head. Well, let's say you want to crush a head like Toxic Avenger or the yeah. famous full head crushing scene. You take a cantaloupe, carve out the inside, then you load what we call loading the cantaloupe. We used to put in hamburger mixed with cranberry sauce, but now because I'm a vegetarian, it's only cranberry and spaghetti and things that are not animal. Then you put a wig on the cantaloupe and paint a little happy face. Bingo. That was Lloyd Kaufman from Troma Films. To hear more interviews and reviews, go to ProudlyResents.com or find Proudly Resents on iTunes and Stitcher. I want to know how you decided to get into film. What was the impetus to go to film school? Well, I've always been into film. As a kid, I grew up in New York. In New York, we had a lot of different TV stations, more than just about any metropolitan area. And each TV station showed different libraries of films. They, they had deals to, to show different studio films. So like you get 20th Century Fox films on one station, and one or another station might have MGM, the entire catalog, or the Warner Brothers catalog, or RKO, or PRC, or Allied Artists. Etc. Etc. And uh, it was like a cinematheque in your house. Now they, they also they ran movie twenty four seven. We had million dollar movie. You know they show King Kong or uh, Citizen Kane for a week, four times a day. If you latch on to these films, as I did, one could get a complete filmic education, at least about the American cinema. And that's what happened to me. I became enamored of the cinema. Between that and then finally being old enough to go to the theater and see films on the big screen and doing that on the weekends, I was a film-crazed maniac. So it was inevitable that I should be involved in film in my professional life, ultimately, because film was always my hobby anyway. So I, I, I had this kind of self-educated thing. You know, I used to collect movies in 8mm uh, when I was a kid. So I, I remember watching Eisenstein's Potemkin when I was about 11, and I got an 8-millimeter copy of that, and Nosferatu by Murnau. And, uh, you know, then, of course, there were the Universal Horror films that came into, uh, that were then televised in the late 60s, mid to late 60s, I should say, on, on ABC. I, I, I was a film buff, specializing in horror films, which I loved. And it was just inevitable that I would finally want to work in the business. I just had to figure out how to do that. Luckily, I did. Did I read right that you went to the London Film School? That's correct. It was a postgraduate situation, kind of an MA, master's degree in film. So you have to be a college graduate. I graduated from the University of Wisconsin as a philosophy major. But when, but at, when I was at Wisconsin, I had done a lot of... Uh, writing a film criticism for the daily newspaper and programming of films for the Union Film Committee where we had a 35 millimeter theater that we could run films in every weekend as well as 16. I was really into the film scene in Madison even though I didn't major in film there. When I, got, when I graduated, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, I knew I wanted to work in film. I had a family obligation to work for my family business, my father's men's clothing so for a while, I, 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 I knew that I really wasn't destined for a career in the men's clothing business, but I had to give it a shot. So I did give it a shot. 
And one thing I found out about the clothing business is it's not too different from the film business in that in the clothing business, you get a lot of different pieces of fabric that are cut and designed to go together to make a garment. It's like you make a movie, which is a garment. It's composed of a lot of little pieces, pieces of film. So cutting and pasting or cutting and sewing were not that far removed. But uh, I ultimately opted to take a plunge into the film world and to try to get training on the technical edge, technical side of filmmaking, so that I could start my career in film. I went to London. I, I hadn't applied to the program. I applied in person, and I got in to the film school. So that was great. And it was, it was a terrific place because it was a trade school, not an academic institution. And they taught you everything. They taught you how to take apart a camera and put it back together again a Mitchell 35-millimeter camera. You learned how to edit films on very archaic equipment, uh, which actually tested your metal. And I found that I was able to cross over when I graduated, when I came to the United States again. Uh, I was able to take the technology that I had learned in London and transpose it to American uh, hardware, like movieolas, things like that. So that all worked out. And we were lucky in that our faculty our staff of teachers, was the highest caliber of the English filmmaking community. Uh, my editing instructor, Frank Clark, had been the man who cut Blow Up from Michelangelo Antonio and many other films. He was a contract editor at MGM, and MGM had kind of shut down their English operation by the time the film school was running. So uh, a lot of people like Frank, who were masters in the field, were available for teaching positions. Unfortunately, the English film industry was not doing so well at the time. Mike Lee was our uh, course instructor. Uh, he was great. We had a lot of terrific directors like Val Guest, who did The Day Earth Caught Fire and The Quatermass Experiment, Wolf Rilla, who did Village of the Shad, uh, Village of the Damned, and many other films, Clive Donner, who did What's New Pussycat. So a lot of really good talent directors, directors of photography, sound technicians. And we, we learned in a Spartan environment how to make movies. We were a big film company. They were very strong on studio work. We had a complete film studio in, in the uh, banana warehouse, which is what it was, uh, in Covent Garden. That became the film school. So I was there for uh, on and off for about three and a half years with a two-year course. And I stayed and worked at the film school and scheduling and programming films, things like that. You talked about buying those uh, 8mm, I imagine they were cut-downs of some of these films, if they were long, but some of them, like Potemkin, I'm sure, was the full film. Where were you getting those when you were a young man? Well, I found out that there were mail-order places that had them. Also, I lived in a suburb of New York City, so I could take the train into Manhattan, and Manhattan had everything. I was also an amateur magician back when I was... In, in elementary school and high school. So I used to go to the magic store on Saturdays, down on 42nd Street, Lieutenant, and check out the latest magic tricks. And then I'd go to the film collector's store, which was a place that had 8mm and 16mm films that they could sell. They were cut-downs. Castle was a big company that did that. But just some complete films, too. I had a complete print of the cabinet of Dr. Caligari, so that was cool. But Tempkin, the first print I got was really just a cut down of the Odessa Steps, which is a signature action scene and an uh, example of uh, Eisenstein editing 
in the picture, uh, which is uh, a show-stopping sequence. So you go from New York to Madison to London. When do you manage to make it to Hollywood? Well, you know, the whole time I was in London, I was having a great time, learning a lot, working hard. Of course, I always felt some sort of a, a cultural distance in that I wasn't English. I didn't grow up there. A lot of the cultural references were lost on me. But I loved it there. It's a great country. It's just a different place. I, I really did have to make a decision whether to stay there or to move on. And I, I, I always wanted to go to Hollywood. I always wanted to live in Los Angeles. Something about the surfing culture that really appealed to me. And something about Hollywood. The tradition of, of filmmaking, uh, all of the studios, it just seemed like a natural fit for me. So I finally decided it was time to come back to the United States. My visa had run out anyway. So in order to stay, I would have had to have dug in, tried to get working permits, things like that. So I, I did that. I stopped off in New York City, uh, went to Florida where my parents were at that point to visit them. Uh, managed to travel down to Madison, Wisconsin, to visit old friends there on my way to Los Angeles. And I flew from Chicago to Los Angeles, uh, stayed my first night in the Holiday Inn, uh, after which I found some some friends from film school that had a little house in Venice, California, where I was able to crash for a while. And out of that, I made friends with other people who let me house sit for them. So I was able to find a place to live pretty quickly. And I started beating the band. And it took me a while to get some traction. But I was determined to break into the film business. And editing was my love. And I finally succeeded by going to the right place at the right time. I went into Roger Corman's film company, New World Pictures, back in 1980. Yeah, about 76, maybe. And that's after being in L.A. for a while. But one day I went to a new, uh, I went to a triple feature screening of Death Race 2000 and some other films at the World Theater on Hollywood Boulevard. And I saw Death Race 2000, directed by Paul Bartell, and I basically blew my mind to see that they were making pictures like that, that had this energy, this vigor, this go for approach to make movies, Gonzo approach. Uh, it was inspiring to me, and that's why I went in to see Roger Corman. I didn't see him, but I saw his head of production at the time, John Davison, and we hit it off because we were both film buffs, and uh, John hired me at no pay to be a production assistant on Hollywood Book, the directorial debut of Alan Arkish and Joe Dante in 1976, I believe. So... That was a terrific experience, where I finally did get paid a little bit of money, but not much, kind of just enough to cover gas. Uh, but we were learning by making films with with simple budgets, low budgets, where we had to be innovative all the time and make up for what was lacking in production value with inspiration and a lot of perspiration. Uh, I met some great people, uh, Joe Dante and Alan Arkish for sure, Jonathan Kaplan, uh, Joe was editing for New World, and so an Alan was too. I was going on to edit some features at New World, uh, Ron Howard's directorial debut, Grand Theft Auto being one of them, and Joe hired me to be his associate editor. Uh, I, I snapped at that opportunity and went for it. And uh, one project led to another. Uh, we did Piranha together, which he directed, and I co-edited it with him. And then The Howling, which was outside of Roger's company, for Afco Embassy, with Michael Fennell producing. All of these films, and Joe's a great director, 
and he made films that people stopped and paid attention to. And so his career went on the upswing. I managed to get more work based on the success of these movies. Uh, I did more movies for Roger. I do an Austin the Deep. I did other pictures outside for the Canon films from Monaco Golan, J. Lee Thompson, on and on and on. I can work on these low budget pictures. And they were great. They made them fast. I learned my craft. I got to hone my craft. I worked with great people, great collaborations. And finally, Gail Hurd, who worked for Roger, uh, recommended me to Jim Cameron, who was directing the, uh, the Terminator, which Gail produced in 1984. And Jim and I hit it off, so I did that picture for him. And that was a huge success. So my career kind of spun in a very positive direction after that. And I got one high-profile project after another, many times coming in to help out a movie that needed help and maybe turn it around and make it better, which I think we succeeded upon doing on a number of films. I did Commando for Gerald Silver and Ramble First Blood Part Two for Kurulko and Ivania Mario Casar. And Ramble uh, was directed by George Cosmatos, who uh, became a, a really good friend as well. Uh, it, was a, it was a high time of a lot of opportunity and a lot of, I, I just got into a string of doing successful pictures. And then I did more films with Jim Cameron and on and on and on and on. What were some of those movies where you feel like you really made a difference with the editing that you helped kind of turn something around? Well, I think uh, Rambo First Blood Part Two was definitely the first and, and uh, the largest scale picture I had ever worked on up to that point. And it was a picture that was that had issues when I came aboard. And somehow I just connected with the material. I had to bring on additional editors straight away because we had a very tight schedule. So I stayed on location as long as it was feasible to do so. And then took the whole product, uh, post-production back to L.A. while they continued shooting and finishing the shooting. Once we had a game plan for additional shots that they needed, uh, we went back to L.A. and quickly put the film together. And I mean quickly, with the help of uh, my co-editor, Mark Elford, and a few other people, and a great crew. And the film was a huge success. So out of that, I got Commando, which was another film that the producers were having issues with in the editing. And same thing, I had like no time at all to get it cut. So I got in there and started cutting, brought in a few additional editors to work under me to deal with various other parts of the film and get it done quickly. And we did it, and it tested well, and it opened and made some money. So this is all very good for one's editing career because if you make successful pictures, you get a reputation for helping pictures that might have some issues. It's a good thing. So I was in the right place at the right time. Now, I read that you uh, did some second unit work on RoboCop. Is that true? I did some second unit directing on RoboCop. I got a call from John Davis, who was producing it, and they wanted to uh, get somebody into the second unit directing chair with editing experience, which I had. And Paul liked my editing work. Uh, so they asked me if I would come down and shoot some second unit, which, which I was delighted to do. I had a short window in my schedule. I was trying, I was actually in preparation for getting uh, Dead Heat off the ground, which was the first film that I directed. And I thought it would be great to work with Paul on Robocop prior to getting the responsibility of the director moving. Uh, what better place to learn than under the work of a master director? And uh, it, it was a very successful collaboration. 
pictures. Paul did a great job. Beautifully edited by Frank Curiosity. So yes, I did some work on that picture. I'm proud of it. And of course, that led me to a green light on Dead Heat, which was a film that Joe Dante helped get, helped me get made by, by kind of like acting as a creative consultant and watching, being able to back me up and I'd be willing to step in if I screwed up. Luckily, I, didn't, I don't think I screwed up. But anyway, you have to see the movie and be the judge of that. But I think it's, you know, it's a horror comedy, so it's a hybrid right away. And finding the balance between the two issues was challenging. And I think we succeeded at times, other times, maybe not, not so much, but picture is what it is. Uh, but it's, it's, a lot of people are beginning to recognize it again, that it kind of disappeared. It was sold as a buddy cop movie, and then turned out there were monsters in it and reanimated corpses. So I had a hard time finding his audience. It was, it was released in a mass saturated opening, said nobody knew anything about the movie or what it was really about. But it was a great uh, experience for me. Got to work with some terrific visual effects people, makeup effects people, especially Steve Johnson, uh, for one. And uh, it was really good. How long had you wanted to direct? What made you uh, say, like, okay, I'm, I've been editing for all of these years. I want to try my hand at directing. Well, I always, I always wanted to direct. But, you know, I, 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 I liked editing a lot. And I kind of was always editing with the eye to directing. And I put it out there that that's what I wanted to do. Now, luckily, I had a lot of traction as, a, as an editor, and that helped uh, and that helped to get me into a situation where people were actually actively seeking me out to consider editing, uh, directing. And Deddy was a project that came across my table. They were looking for a director. Uh, it seemed like material that I could get my, wrap my head around. I really liked the script by Terry Black. And uh, I got the opportunity to do it. It's that simple. I kind of took myself off the market as an editor, because a lot of people would keep offering me editing jobs with an eye towards getting a, a development deal to direct. But that that road is filled with peril, because more often than not, that, that development deal never translates into an opportunity to make a movie. But in my case, I was working on these huge movies as an editor, and then I was able to kind of take my success uh, from those projects and use it as leverage on a low-budget picture, where the stakes were not so high. Our movie was $4.5 million below the line, 5.4 all in, including stars, and above the line uh, talent. So I got the opportunity to make the movie, it was that simple. And, and New World was very supportive while I was making the picture. To the result, they offered me a multi-picture deal, which I accepted. And uh, out of that came The Punisher, my second film for New World, uh, based upon people being very happy with Dead Heat and the way it was looking. With Dead Heat, how close to what you saw in Terry Black's original script, how close is that to what we see on screen? Very close. I have great respect for the written word. And certainly, I wasn't going to go off the book on a first picture anyway. I wanted everything pre-planned and, and, and set up because it's challenging to make a picture in 35 days, which is what we had to make. And 
And you have to be prepared. You have to know what you want to shoot and what you need and what you're willing to let go when you run out of time because the day is coming to a close and the sun is setting and there go your lights. So you have, you have to really work fast on, on a low-budget picture. And I believe you try to work fast on any kind of movie. So I learned how to do that. And it was a grueling pace, really. But we, we, we did it because I had a supportive crew and a cast that went the extra mile to get there. And great visual effects for me. Todd Masters also, who worked with Steve and did a lot of the puppets and anna, anna, uh, animatronic heads. Uh, the butcher scene, the butcher shop scene where all the animals are resurrected and come back to life. Tremendous stuff. This was all pre-computer graphics uh, visual effects. So we had to do practical effects that work. And we had great makeups. A lot of really good makeup artists worked on Dead Heat. Yeah, the way that Treat Williams decomposes on film is pretty remarkable just to see him from scene to scene getting worse and worse as he goes along. You know, that was the idea that he was slowly disintegrating, slowly losing his facial features and his humanity, actually. But he would keep a glimmer of his humanity. Treat was a very serious actor and worked very hard on his character and was very thoughtful about it and tried to be true to who his character was. And he took great comic twists, took emotional to the light to work. He's the kind of guy who would call me at 3 o'clock in the morning with an idea. And, and you listen. And uh, you generally the ideas were great. So uh, Joe Piscopo was a lot of fun to work with. Vincent Price, Darren McGavin, Lindsay Frost, Keith Luke had a wonderful time on the movie. How was it for you directing actors for the first time, or did you gain a, get a little bit of experience with that with RoboCop? Well, you know, I, I tried to work on their level. I didn't tell them what to do. I tried to help them get into the mindset of what I thought they needed to get to if they needed help at all. They brought a lot to the table. And I gave them free reign to improvise in rehearsals and we'd come up with certain things that we would lose, use in the takes and certain things that we wouldn't. They were, they were all spot on. And they, they were fun to work with. I, I was great that they would listen to what I had to say. And I, I didn't try to act it out for them. I let them do that. And I, they certainly had the resources to do it well and, and impressed me. So how easy or difficult was it for you to let go and let someone else edit your work? It was hard to let go completely. Now, I, I, I didn't want to edit the film all by myself because I wanted the advantage to have the objectivity of a good editor as a sounding board, as somebody who would see things that I may have been too close to since having directed since I have it intended. But at the very end of the day, it doesn't matter what your intention was. What matters is what's on film. The performances that you get and the reason send the camera moves as the blocking of the actors and all of those things that you do in the lighting, they are what they are. You can time the film differently, but you're kind of locked in to the performances and locked into the sets and the costumes and things like that. But there's a lot to do in it to make a picture sing. And Harvey Rosenstock, who edited the picture for me, who I knew was an editor on Moonlighting, a terrific TV series back in the day, and was a friend. I had a lot to contribute to bring this picture up to a better, a higher level than, than I might have done on my own. 
I, on the other hand, had a good background in action editing and in editing in general. So I was able to take bills and sometimes just go through them and make adjustments, which hardly you agree it's okay for me to do. I didn't close on it as an editor that the only way to really influence the editing of a movie really is to dive into the editing. You have to get into that state of consciousness where you're in the malleable form of actually making the changes and you're in the film doing it, as opposed to standing outside of the film, watching a screen and dictating notes to the editor, which I did as well. And I did that with Harvey on a lot of occasions. And he would try my notes and do things, and he would come up with cuts that we agreed on them. Good. But in some cases, I wanted to take the action scenes further or see what I could do with them. So I did come in and manipulate certain scenes hands-on. Because really, to do that hands-on is, is different than talking about doing it and giving notes. And I know that. Which is why when a director like James Cameron, to be one of the editors as well, and physically get behind the constructing of the scenes, I understand why. Because there is that reality in which you're in it. You're inside the movie, helping to form it. And nothing else like it. And so at that and in The Punisher, the other film I directed, I, I took the liberty of availing myself, availing myself of my services uh, and direct. And of course, I would collaborate with the uh, editor, Tim Wilburn, who was the Australian editor that worked for me on The Punisher, was terrific. He had done the last third of Mad Max 2, Love War, which is a film that was very influential to me. So I was very lucky to get to work with someone like him. And occasionally I would tweak some things to try to get them further into a place where they were unique. So ultimately, were you happy with the end product of Dead Heat and The Punisher? Yeah, I mean, those films are done. They're frozen in time. And there's certain things I might have wanted to do differently. I was actually striving to make a harder-edged horror film than what appeared in the final version of Dead Heat. Uh, because uh, people wanted me to not make it so hard edge and the gore, and it's still pretty gory, but it's kind of a cartoon goriness. I was going after real grand guignol effects, and, and we do get them in the movie. But sometimes the makeups are a little more keeping within the facial framework of the actors without letting them turn into complete grotesques. Uh, and, and I think this was something with the studio concerned about the likability of their characters and the audience being able to identify with them. And you can't deny that the shrewd of Joe Piscopo's eye goes a long way with his character and seeing him in a certain goofy manifestation of his character of uh, Detective Bigelow. Treat, of course, has a, a certain comic reality as well. And they, they, they did play it for light comedy. And it, it serves the picture very well. Take a self-deprecating view about decomposing and facing certain death. But as I said, it's a horror film and a comedy. So a little light edge, light touch is a good thing. Sure, it was a little more serious, but I tried to give some humor in that too. The scene of the one woman melting is truly horrific, and it's wonderful for that. I love that scene. You know, it's like something that we did in The Howling, which was uh, when the big werewolf transformation first occurs with the change of and of course, uh, grows a snout that comes out, out. And we just, it's like the movie stops and we see this multi-minute transformation scene. It's just worse. 
it's 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 show-stopping. That's what they are, set pieces. Show-stopping set pieces. And and sometimes time can stand still when you allow them to unfold. And I felt with the disintegration of Lindsay Frost's character uh, in Dead Heat that we were doing that. It's like, what am I seeing here? This is amazing. I can't believe that. And that happens too? Are you kidding me? And audiences seem to respond pretty well to that scene. And, and other scenes, the other major set piece being the butcher shops. It could easily turn silly, but it is truly so scary. Pretty scary. We just, did, we just wanted to let it go on and go to places where you wouldn't expect it to go. Just take, take it, gonzo, take it, gonzo to the edge. Go to the edge. But when you, it's like the movie stops and we're in, the, in this scene. And then the scene has its own excitement, that arc, and culminates in a climax. And then the audience would break into applause most of the time on that scene, that Richard Johnson. That's a showstopper. I love this. Ultimately, how was the film received? Well, it wasn't received particularly well when it came out because most critics couldn't get over the hybrid nature of the film or they thought it was just silly. But audiences, uh, especially audiences who may have caught it on, on videotape soon after the theatrical release, uh, were reacting in more positive ways. And over time, the film developed a cult following. And now it's kind of, by a lot of people view it as kind of a, a cult film benchmark of a state, a product of its times, very 80s in terms of costume design, set decoration, uh, sensibility, 80s action pictures. But a lot of people seem to like it because it is different. It has a freshness to it. It's just a kind of nice change of pace. So I'm glad that it has had this secondary life in its history. So this is the 30th anniversary year of the movie, and that's a long time ago. We were all a lot younger when we made it. But, uh, you know, I'm, happy, I'm very happy with it. And with the Punisher. Although I would have put the skull back on the shirt in hindsight. We're not going to do any special editions on, in which we digitally add the skull. That's not going to happen. So you take it with, without the skull. I have to ask, what was the decision to not have the skull? We were trying to get away from the costume of the comic book at the time, the costume in the comic book was very much form-fitting, and it was, it was like a traditional superhero costume, with a tight shirt that had a logo on the skull. Now, we wound up with something a little more earthy, that's a costume that the Punisher actually creates for himself in the movie. We imply that he's created it. And it's a big leather jacket, a motorcycle jacket, because that protects you riding a motorcycle from falls and things like that. But we could have put the skull on his T-shirt, and that would have been that would have made some sense. That was a real oversight. But I have to admit that I went along with it. We were all pretty agreed that Punisher costume wanted to, in our movie, be a little earthier and more about found parts that made the costume, as opposed to a designed superhero-type costume that was kind of Velcro and uh, form-fitting with muscular arms showing through the T-shirt, things like that. And that's why we did it. Miscalculated. I am curious if you have experienced any of the other versions of The Punisher over the years, or if you've just kind of avoided those. No, I've seen them all, all the ones that I could see. And I like every one of them. They're different. Every one of them has a different approach to the character. 
everyone has a different approach to the violence and the comedy. Well, there, there were the two in the, in the theaters. There was one on, on Netflix, uh, Marvel TV did that. That's really probably closest to the comedy, I think. And there was another one. What's his name? The guy who starred in the first of the remakes was against Travolta, Thomas Jane. Thomas Jane was really quite interesting in the part. And years, years later, he did a direct-to-internet uh, short follow-up piece in which he played the Punisher. And was, there were the scenes that took place in a, a clothing, a, a laundromat. And uh, he was terrific in that. It was a follow-up piece that he did just out of sheer love for the character. Jonathan Hensley did a great job on directing his feature version with Tom Jane. And then the other version that, uh, that was made with uh, Jigsaw, isn't that the name of the bad guy? That was very much harkening back, harkening back to the Dick Tracy school of uh, villains. Reminds me of a Dick Tracy kind of villain. Bigger than life, archetype. And that was tremendously violent, but worked for the film. I find them all very interesting. But Punisher, even though they've made all these different versions of it, it's a very hard character to pull off because he is so violent. And because depending on how you play him, he's pretty unhinged. I mean, in our movies, he's psychotic, basically. And, and, and that's, you know, not going to do a lot for your audience involvement in the, in the character, not necessarily. I mean, if you're willing to go that mile and take it into the mind of a, a psychopath, I mean, he's got good thoughts, but he's a psychopath. So it's tricky to pull that off because uh, he's a morally compromised character. It raises a lot of issues, let's put it that way, that you can either ignore or confront head-on in the movie. We confronted them, some of them head-on, but uh, Punisher is what it is, a killing machine. Now, I know you directed an episode of Eerie, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Were there any plans for you to do any more features after the Punisher? I was offered a few things, uh, and I wasn't really happy with the projects, and I kind of made an agreement with myself that I wouldn't do anything that I didn't really believe in. Because somebody can offer you something and say, well, here's the money to make it. We'll pay you this amount of money to make to direct it. And you can say yes, but you still have to make the movie. And you better love the material. Because if you don't love the material, I don't know why you're making the movie. It takes, it takes a lot of your life out of you to make a movie. And you want to put those aspects of your life back into the movie. So if it's a movie that you don't like, why make it? What a waste of your energy that is. Don't do it. Now, I, I'm not a writer, so I wasn't coming up with original projects. I had to go for projects that were being offered to, or were out to directors. So the things I was getting were generic action pictures that really didn't interest me that much. I, I like action movies, but the ones I was getting, I just I, I didn't find one that I wanted to do. And in the same token, I was being called consistently to get back into the editing game and come edit these movies. And finally, one of the offers was to come in on Clive Barker's Nightbreed. And I thought, wow, working with Clive Barker is a pretty heavy-duty thing. And I'd like to do that. So I did it. And that, that was a fun collaboration. And then and I think the next film I did was for Stephen Hopkins and for my old producing friend, Joel Silver, and that was great to do. I wasn't getting offers to direct films of that nature. So I went back into editing because I needed to work. I needed to make a living. I could 
have more choices, have more viable choices in projects that were interesting to me as an editor than I was getting as a director at that time. So that's really why I went back into editing. Throughout the 90s, you edited some of the best action films of that entire decade. I mean, Predator 2, Terminator 2, Last Boy Scout, Tombstone, The Rock, Starship Troopers, True Lies. I mean, it is just, it's a roster of just some of the most favorite movies that people have of that decade. That must feel pretty good. I was very lucky to get the opportunity to do all those films. I was definitely on a roll. So I had made the right decision to go back into editing um, because I got to edit films that made me very happy and films that I was very proud of and to collaborate with filmmakers that I loved and was stimulated by and uh, and to work with a variety of different accomplices and collaborators in the different crafts, sound, music, composers, sound designers, uh, writers, producers. It was really great. I worked with some of the best people in the business, and I was really fortunate. And many times I worked with a bunch of other editors. We would do these giant tentpole movies that required a lot of editors because we had a lot of footage and generally not a lot of time to get that footage cut, locked, and into the visual effects turnover stage. It's always challenging to do this. So I'm very pleased with my career. I enjoyed films. I, I I, you know, being a horror fan and an action film fan, I was working in the medium uh, that I, I liked anyway. And, uh, and I'm getting paid for it. What could be better? So I, I, but, you know, it's all about the people you're collaborating with. Not one person can do it on their own. And uh, I've been lucky in that I've gotten to collaborate with great people throughout my career. So you've probably seen a lot of things over the years that people have not ever had the opportunity to see as some of the scenes that we've heard about over the years, some of the things that might have happened with some of these movies. Do you have any favorite memories of, of maybe, you know, scenes that ended up on the, the virtual cutting room floor that really would have helped out or that you really wish could have made it into that final cut? Well, I can think of one on the film that I directed, Dead Heat, which was, uh, Dick Miller's scenes, uh, we talked about Dick Miller previously, and he really was terrific. And he played a small role of a security guard at a cemetery where uh, True Williams' character goes to search the crypt of John Loudermilk, the millionaire who had disappeared, presumed dead, who was actually the, the force behind all of the reanimations that were happening in the movie. Uh, anyway, Dick Miller was comic relief, pure and simple. And he was great. And unfortunately, the studio didn't like the comic relief. They wanted to cut cut him out. Now, the movie plays 86 minutes as released. With Dick's additional material, it probably hit 88 and a half, maybe 89 minutes. I, I miss his scenes. They made the picture better. But I had to give them up because the studio insisted. It's just one of those things where sometimes you get into a creative logjam in terms of ideas. And we were in opposite points of view on this, they, they made me take it out. And it was painful for me to do it because I love Dick Miller. And I thought his scene really helped the movie. So that said, you're one that I missed. Generally speaking, stuff that we take out is, is a good thing for the movie because that's why we take it out. 
take it out and make it play better, to make the high points of the movie stand out, and maybe to take longers, things when you go off the track, sub-concepts that you may not need, whatever, and take them out and make the picture flow better. I'm a big believer in making a picture flow well. Sometimes you just have to give up certain things for the good of the whole movie. And I think even today, a lot of movies are too long. Coaching argument for why you have to keep something in the movie. But uh, sometimes the movie just plays better with with that little thing out. You don't have to be so explicit sometimes. You have to make a choice. If the picture plays, that's great. If something's crucial to the film, that's terrific. If something drags the film down, you got to face it and cut it out. Like a chance, in a way, because it, because it had bad results if you keep it in. If you keep it in. So uh, there you go. You just do the best you can. There's a, a phenomenon called fan editing where people will take films, uh, fans will take films and they'll maybe add in all the deleted scenes again or they'll recut the picture. I imagine that the recutting is probably not something that you uh, would endorse, but maybe adding back in some of those deleted scenes sometimes might be an okay thing. That's something to think about. I mean, I, I believe that the movie that you present is the movie that's there. Now, sometimes I may have favored a previous cut, previous version of a movie that I edited to the release version. I, certain films, I think, got overcut in the collaboration with the studios. I mean, that has been known to happen in, in the interest of making faster and faster and faster and faster. Sometimes you lose perspective. But at the end of the day, you fight to keep in what you think you need, and you let go what you have to let go. Remember, in this country... Final cut is generally with the studios. They get to tell you what the final cut will be. They don't always exercise that right. They may go along with an editor's or a director's, more often than not, a director's point of view, if they have a coaching argument why they want something the way they want it. But they don't have to. As a result, a lot of films will get cut down, tightened up maybe to the point where you don't know what's going on anymore. Sometimes they're over-edited because editing is the process that goes on and on and on and on. The more you do it, the less objective you are about it. To be objective about it, you've got to step back and forget about everything you've been doing for the last six weeks and watch the movie. You've got to watch it with fresh eyes. You can't watch it with fresh eyes if you're working 22 hours a day, changing, 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 changing. So it is a general statement about editing. You have to be wary of the fact that overindulgence, over-critiquing, of a movie. And second guessing of what the audience will or will not do can be dangerous as well as positive. It can be dangerous because you might be hurting something that was working perfectly fine, but you didn't see it. It's cutting, they say cut off your nose, spike your face. So you don't know. You have to go with your gut. I always try to go with my gut. And I always try to make the best picture possible. And, and not to make, you know, if you make a successful movie, and everybody's happy at the end of the day. Creative decisions sometimes become very personal and it becomes a turf war. It's actually known to happen to Usually the picture suffers from that, which is have to say. But not always. You just try to protect the picture as much as you can. And at the end of the day, whoever has final cut will have final cut. What are you working on these days? Well, I've kind of semi-retired. What I did was see my Walt's film of... Um, Death Wish with Bruce Willis. So now I'm doing some teaching. I'm kind of reassisting 
you know, I've retired on 70, going, going on 70 years. I had some health issues, basically. And they kind of forced me to have to step down from the editing movements because I do have these health issues. I don't know how much of that may be apparent from this interview, but uh, I'm doing well. But uh, time for me to take a break. Well, hey, thank you so much for your time. This has been a real pleasure talking with you. Well, great. I enjoyed it, too. So, hi, everybody. It's good to be talking things because I, I love them. They're like my children, in a way. Children of the cinema. Cinematic children. I've read a little bit about your background, and I'm curious how you got into screenwriting. Oh, that's likely because my brother. <laughs> you know about Shane and whatnot? I, I think I've heard the name Shane Black, yeah. Shane Black, a friend of Lethal Weapon. He broke into business when he was 23. Sold that script for a quarter of a million dollars. Became kind of a Hollywood wonderkind. <laughs> uh, he's still at it. He's had a string of movies. He directed Iron Man 3. It was his latest big hit. And, oh, this is a funny story. He is directing a new Predator film called The Predator, which comes out in September. And the way he, the way he got into that, and the original Predator with Schwarzenegger, Shane is the first of the commandos to be killed by the monster. <laughs> you see him hanging from a tree with guts hanging out. With those huge glasses on. That's right. <laughs> his name was Hawkins. He's got his own action figure now. So in order to have him hanging from a tree, they didn't actually kill Shane. <laughs> they, they made a plaster cast dummy he had to stay absolutely immobile for 45 minutes breathing through two straws in his nose like like a plaster cast Shane and then they could tear out the guts and whatever they wanted to so Shane had this great idea I don't think he ever did this it was a great idea he'd take dummy Shane with the guts hanging out put it in his living room couch and call the friend and say can you come over I'm not feeling well the door open <laughs> I don't think he actually did that but he should have <laughs> So Shane got under Predator because they wanted him to do a rewrite of the script. And he looked it over and said, you know, I don't, I don't want to do this. I'm sorry, I don't have time. And they said, what would it take for you to do this? And he said, make me one of the commandos. And they, they will never do a deal like that. But for Shane, they did. And so he got to be killed by the monster. And I asked him if he was going to get a new Predator. He said, well, sort of a problem because I'm dead. But I guess we see his picture or something, so he's, he's in there. <laughs> I'm going to get that action figure, find something interesting to do with it. So anyhow, what happened was, I had been trying to break into show business. Shane was my younger brother. By seven years, he went to UCLA, had this big break with Lethal Weapon. And he recommended me to his agency, Creative Artist Agents. And I wrote a script called Dead Heat, about a cop on the trail of his own killer. And Shane passed that along at... They liked it and ultimately got me my screenplay deal. The movie actually got produced. That very rarely happens. They just lucked in for the first time. <laughs> it was also the last time I've had a movie made. <laughs> but the doctors are very hopeful. Did I read that you won a uh, that you won a contest with that screenplay? I did. Yes, it was the uh, Nissan Motors Focus Award. Surprised you heard about that. I got a couple of grand for that. It was really fun. You got to meet people in the business and, and none of the special effects, but everything, everything works. I thought it was kind of a validation, you know, for me uh, slogging along. 
selling short stories. I still sell short stories sometimes. I think my record so far has sold a short story for $4.80. And I was proud to have it. Like a quarter cent per word. So that doesn't matter. It's a sale. They give me money for it. It still seems amazing somehow. People will give you money just for stuff that you made up. But it's true. Yeah, shame, isn't it? What the New World Pictures, they like the script. They got Vincent Price to do a cameo in it, which I thought was pretty amazing. It was one of his last films. Well, the thing about Vincent Price, his first words to me, endear him to me forever. He said, and I quote, great script. <laughs> you haven't lived until Vincent Price has said that to you. <laughs> so my favorite Vincent Price quote, I'll read it. He was on some, some sort of interview. They asked him serious questions about show business, but the last was kind of a gag question. It was, is it true you spend all of your time in dimly lit castles torturing innocent young women? Without messing a beat, he said, of course not. Everyone knows there's no such thing as an innocent young woman. And see, Piscopo was fun, the bodybuilding comedian. <laughs> he kept on the scenes with his shirt off. I don't think that shirt could get any tighter. It's kind of a problem for the wardrobe person because Tweet in particular, he keeps getting shot, wounded, and injured, and he's wearing the same clothes. So they had to have an entire rack of clothes and increasing degrees of decrepitation as they're torn apart by various gunshots and stabbings and whatnot. And he also, um, they had to have a couple of hours of makeup in the morning before they started filming toward the end of it. Don't envy him that. And then poor Lindsay Frost had her face melt off. That wasn't pleasant either. Oh, it was great fun to watch. So, oh, I talked to uh, Lindsay Frost. You know, she plays the, well, the girl whose face melts off. As luck would have it, she was a soap opera star. And Soap Opera Digest had a, cover, a picture with her face on the cover. So I got a copy and took it to her. And I said, would you sign this for me? She said, of course. I said, well, why don't you sign it in a particular way? I want you to sign it to Terry. Thanks for that torrid weekend, Lindsay Frost. <laughs> and she did. I still have that. But that's the story I'm not telling. <laughs> it will be using the story, but I'm still not telling. How close to uh, what you originally wrote ended up on screen? It was uh, surprisingly close for the most part. There was one thing I did object to at the end of it. Well, I did and I didn't. Vincent Price gives that long speech about the nature of resurrection and so forth. Yes, well, this is the action climax. We don't want a long speech about resurrection. That was before I knew Vincent Price was going to do it. Sort of, sort of two minds. I thought, well, it's still the wrong place for a speech, but it's really cool that Vincent Price is doing it. There's a scene in the movie where they find this mysterious back room. It's a Chinese butcher shop where all the food comes to life and attacks them. I think it comes some sort of an internet award for best Chinese butcher shop food coming to life scene of all time. So we had a creative meeting at New World. We love the butcher shop scene. Well, we want you to go behind the scenes. There's a mysterious back room where they find something even more frightening and mysterious. I thought, well, you've just seen me come to life. What's more frightening and mysterious than that? They said, Terry can do it. You've got to do this. So I said, okay, here's my strategy. I'm going to think of the dumbest scene I can. It'll be so awful. Well, we can't use this. They'll throw it out. So I wrote a scene where they find a zombie duck head. <laughs> he goes, whack, whack, some little tray. I said, no, Santa, go, this is stupid. We can't use this. So you know what happened? 
we had a meeting. Say, Terry, zombie duckheads, what a great idea! I said, wait, wait. I couldn't tell them. Well, they just put that in, so you'd say no. So I found myself stuck with a zombie duckhead. It's in the movie. And to be fair, as the years go by, I find that I'm developed a certain fondness for the zombie duckhead scene. I may put another zombie duckhead in something else I write someday. Watch this space. So sometimes when writers are, when after they turn in their draft, it's just like, okay, see ya. We don't want to ever see you again. It sounds like you were welcome on the set. Is that true? I was very fortunate in that regard. Uh, yes, they welcomed me on the set for the whole time. Oh, and you know what happened? Yeah, I was there every day. And they made a deal. Debbie Fields herself or Mrs. Fields Cookies. There's a scene where Joe Piscopo holds a Mrs. Fields cookie bag and gulps down its contents. You can see it plainly on screen. In exchange for that, Debbie Fields agreed to provide free Mrs. Fields chocolate chip cookies for every member of the cast and crew on every day of production. Doesn't matter what was going on, they were in the middle of some important scene, no matter how they cookies are here, they're going to stop dead right out to get the cookies. So I was talking to Alan Metkowitz, who was a set doctor, and he said, you probably think free chocolate chip cookies is the greatest thing you've ever seen. And I said, yes, I do. He said, well, let me tell you something. You may like them now. By day 35 of this production, he'll be so sick of them, he'll never want to see another chocolate chip cookie. I wasn't sure that was true. So day one, I couldn't wait. And day two, I couldn't wait. At the end of the first week, I couldn't wait. At the end of the second week, I couldn't wait. At the end of production on day 35, I still couldn't wait. I never got tired of chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> to this day, I can't go buy Mrs. Fields' cookies without grabbing one. <laughs> True story. What was it like working with Darren McGavin? Well, I liked Darren a lot. He, of course, was the night stalker. He had kind of a, he really brought something to it. <laughs> I think he enjoyed being the bad guy for once. A night stalker, he's always the one who uncovers some conspiracy. And he was the actual killer this time. <laughs> he seemed to take to it maybe a little too well. But he liked the way he respected the script, he respected the words. I'll give that to him. And the night stalker, even today, one of the scariest things that's ever been on TV. They recently had a revival. They were showing them again. They're just as scary as they ever were. And I'm convinced we wouldn't have the X-Files without the Night Stalker, because that obviously just follows the same style, the same kind of stories. They even had Darren McGavin as a guest of the X-Files one time, as sort of homage to him. Let's see what else. Oh, you know what, uh, what inspired the Chinese butcher shop scene in the first place? I was in Chinatown in San Francisco, where originally wanted to set this. It was ultimately filmed in Los Angeles. I was uh, wandering around looking for things that might inspire me for my zombie film. And I found this old woman... She had, it was like a cage on a cart. It was on the sidewalk. She was selling live chickens. And she had a sign on the side of the cart. It said in handwritten letters, these chickens are for food, not pets. Apparently people were buying them and complaining. They weren't very active. And so then I thought, you know what? <laughs> we could do a scene where the food comes to life. And that became the Chinese butcher shop scene, which is an obscure website. I was very enamored of. Not sure what the moral is there. Well, it's also pretty great having Key Luke and... Um... Toru Tanaka, I believe. Uh, yeah, he was something. He did this demonstration where you would uh, try and attack him with a pen or something, pretending it was a knife. And he could take it away from you so fast, he'd be gone before you knew what happened. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. 
Yeah, I wouldn't fight him. <laughs> that would be a bad idea. He was a very pleasant person, though. I liked him a lot. I was careful to stay on his good side, as you might expect. Well, I know you got some inspiration as well from DOA. I like the nod to that in the film. Yes, indeed. I contend that's one of the great movies ever made. You know, the first time I watched DOA, I discovered something about it. I didn't understand what the hell was going on. And it doesn't matter. <laughs> All you need to know is, he's dying. He's going to get the bastard who did this to him. And he follows some strange trail deduction that I defy anyone to explain. That finally gets him there. Goes face to face with the guy. And kills him dead. And it's very satisfying. Because of the best movies, I think the moments you remember are not the plot movies. They're not the plot moments. They're the things that grab you emotionally, and that film does. It hardly matters how he finds the guy. It's the fact that he does. And by the way, it's very impressive with the Dennis Quaid remake. Did you see that? It's been a long time since I have. It came out about the same time as Dead Heat. So, yes, it's been a while. It was uh, lambasted by critics, but I thought they didn't give it a fair shake. It was clean taken with it. It was a new take. The screen kind of darkens its color film at first. The color bleeds out of it as he approaches his death. It's a great scene in the tar pits. <laughs> Uh, yes, well, I'm sure they'll make more move versions of DOA as we go. The Crink movies are very much a uh, DOA situation. <laughs> yes, indeed, I love the Crank movies. <laughs> like, once again, very little sense, and you don't care. When they, when we have to rub people to get static electricity to keep themselves alive? <laughs> Perhaps more than anything else, that was a film I wish I'd written. <laughs> Dang, that should have been me. <clears throat> so yes, highly recommended. Pretty much anyone trying to find your own killer, you've got me on board. I remember there was talk of a sequel, which didn't necessarily make a lot of sense, but did it make enough money to merit a sequel? It did not. No, it was a little disappointing at the box office. I think they promoted it wrong. The thing about Dead Heat, if you look at the poster, it shows them, because you can't keep a good cop dead, which is not a bad tagline. But you can't tell from looking at the poster that it's about zombies. In fact, they didn't want to use the word zombie in the advertising. Because they thought it was a better film than that. I didn't think it was a better film than that. I thought that's exactly what it was. Get it out there. So I think if it had been more overtly a horror film. You know, if Roger Corman hadn't sold New World Pictures, if he was still at the helm, he would have done that right. Don't try to pretend it's something else. It's a zombie film. Glory in that. That's what they should have done. I did write a sequel to Dead Heat, which I doubt will ever see daylight. We, we had a meeting. They said, could you write a sequel? I said, well, sort of a problem. Because I remember the cast is dead. I said, well, you've got a zombie film. Handle it. <laughs> so I figured out the way they could all come back to life and do it again. I don't know how good a film that would have been. But it was fun to write. It'll always be there as a sort of impossible dream. I actually wrote a novelization. The sort of novelization didn't own Dead Heat at that point. This is a couple of years ago. But you can't copyright an idea. So the idea of someone going after his own killer after coming back from the dead, well, he can't copyright that. So I made up a completely different character, completely different situation. And I wrote a novel called Deader Than Ever, which... Uh, I have high hopes for either getting it published and or produced. The, uh, one of the producers of Dead Heat, Michael Meltzer, wants to put a deal together with that and make a new movie out of it. 
he's like a pit bull. He gets hold of something and he won't let go of it. He says, we're going to do this. I wrote a script about a talking ferret private detective. And he wants to do that now. <laughs> he was over 30 years ago. So we just made get one of these done because he won't let go of it. I have a sort of left-handed confidence in him. I think he may pull it off. Stay tuned for details. Very curious about your work on uh, Tales from the Crypt. And what was that experience like for you? Well, Tales from the Crypt was fun. Well, it's once again that Joel Silver was developing this. The reason Joel Silver invented that series was he promised so many people, we'll give you a crack at directing, they couldn't possibly give them all movies. But he said, okay, we've got Tales from the Crypt episode. He did with numerous people. You know, Woody Goldberg did one, Tom Hanks did one, Schwarzenegger did one. That was kind of a cool series. I think it brought a sensibility, it brought a uh, level of quality to those sort of horror films, or short horror films they hadn't seen before. Shane said he was kind of busy doing them, but didn't ask if I could write, take his place and fill it and write a couple for him. I wrote one of the first ones. It was about a guy with nine lives. Sells tickets for people to come see him die. Oh, this is funny. That was nominated for Cable Ace Award. It was developed so that uh, people writing cable shows, it was the equivalent of the Emmy for cable. So that people writing cable shows would be aced out of the Emmys. The problem was, cable shows began to dominate the Emmys <laughs> because they had some really good stuff. And the Cable Ace Award began to seem redundant, so they kind of stopped doing it. But before that happened, my Tales in the Crypt episode was nominated for one. It was up against a story by Ray Bradbury from an episode of Ray Bradbury Theater. And my script won. I beat Ray Bradbury. <laughs> I don't know how or why. I actually talked about it sometime later. He said, you know, Terry, I've won so many awards, I don't mind giving you one. <laughs> He's very gracious about it. So I'm in the, I think it was the Pantages Theater. They had this, this big televised ceremony. And I was so certain that Tales from the Crypt would not win that I hadn't bothered to prepare a victory speech. And then Godfrey said, Terry Black, Tales from the Crypt. I said, well, crap. I want to do what I do. So I went up there, and this beautiful woman in a gown handed me the award. I'm looking into the cold black eye of the camera. And said the first thing came to mind. I said, I'd like to devote this award, dedicate this award to my younger brother, Shane, who got me into the business. That woman said, this will show the little bastard I can do it too. The whole place cracked up. <laughs> that was my great victory. <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty cool show. It was the one thing I wrote that people remember. See, yeah, with the zombie film Dead Heat, no one knows what that was. I worked from stories like uh, Silk Stockings was one, uh, 18 Wheels of Justice, various you know, late-night cop shows. One thing everybody says is, oh, yeah, Tales from the Crypt. That used to make me cringe. <laughs> Very proud. That episode, the the uh, one where the guy kept dying, That was, was that Richard Donner that directed that? Yes, yes, indeed. Richard Donner of Lethal Weapon fame. He was one of the people that Joel cajoled <laughs> into doing it. I think one of the reasons that show worked so well, so they had absolute top-level talent doing them. It was kind of cool to be directed by the guy who did Lethal Weapon. And he brought a lot to it. They had to... Well, it takes place in a carnival. The whole thing is indoors. Then in this giant studio, they brought in... Um, had some sort of crap on the floor to make it look like wood shavings, like you're outside. And some sort of artificial something that you weren't supposed to breathe. You're supposed to wear these masks all the time so you wouldn't inhale it. And the camera's always moving. The style of that is very fluid. You can see his mastery as a director. 
when he put this thing together. So Robert Wool, he's an actor and comedian. He played the Carnival Barker. He came up, he had an improv for me. He said, Derry, here's what I do. He's trying to persuade the guy to give him even more acts because he has nine lamps in a great production. He says, you know, I could use the money. My freaks need a new shoe. That's <laughs> what so that's in there. And Joe Pandaleone was the actual guy. <laughs> I thought it would be hard finding nine ways for him to die. This is taken from uh, one of the original Tales from Cup comic books, you know, Wingman Games, the ones that were uh, prohibited by the national. Some organization, and by Frederick Wortham, so the comic books were corrupting our young people, had been banned, based largely, I think, on the Tales from the Crypt comics. And uh, so what better thing to make a TV show out of? And uh, became one of the most popular series. That was one to be dark and horrible and awful. I always want to do the funny ones. <laughs> you can kind of tell. Uh, the ones I officially wrote were uh, The Guy With Nine Lives, Dig That Cat, He's Real Gun. There was one where um, it's about a cartoonist, Harry Anderson from Night Court. He plays a cartoonist that draws monsters to come to life. That was really fun. Uh, Corman's Calamity, was called. If you're that Jim Corman, the original artist. Although the story is much, not much like his original story. And The Reluctant Vampire was the other. Uh, Donald Longtooth, played by Malcolm McDowell. A vampire who hates to kill people, so he gets a job as a night watchman in a blood bank. And there were a couple of episodes that I wrote that were completely rewritten. I thought, well, I really want my name in it because it's not mine. I used to pseudonym Donald Longtooth, just the name of the vampire. So if you see that, it's sort of me. <laughs> I'm not sure how that helps you. But yes, I'm proud to have been part of a groundbreaking horror series that gave little kids nightmares and continues to do so. With uh, 18 Wheels of Justice, did you get to uh, meet G. Gordon Liddy? I never met him personally, which is probably just as well. <laughs> kind of gave me the creeps. <laughs> he was great. For, he made a great villain. He was scary. He wasn't kidding around. And of course, Lucky Vanos was our, our trucker. Uh, tall and true. I don't know if he had a great range as an actor, but he was really good at playing that part. You really believe he's this tough guy trucker who don't take nothing from no one. Just the whole conceit of the series. He's the witness protection program. He testified against the mob. Now they want him dead. So in order to conceal him, they've given him an 18-ton powder blue truck, which he drives around all the major cities. But, all right. <laughs> it's the fugitive with a giant powder blue 18-ton truck. So then they just station people outside the city to say, well, let us know if this truck goes by. But unfortunately, the mob never thinks of that. So he's still out there. That, show, that was really fun to write for. That was one of the Stu Siegel shows. And uh, the glorious illogic of it was something I kind of found appealing. It was very entertaining to watch. Well, other than the, uh, the Ferret movie, what else are you working on these days? Well, I've got a pitch coming up at DreamWorks. I shouldn't talk about this because they may just say no. It's about the uh, character Johnny Quantum. He's a good old boy from Tennessee who was kidnapped by aliens. They need a guardian because they're afraid to take care of themselves. So he fights alien horrors on the far side of the galaxy. I had this idea there's a villain called the Forgetter. And happens they send people out after him. And they come back going, was I supposed to do something? <laughs> and they can never quite get him. And he has a girlfriend, Virtual Susie. He had to leave his girlfriend back on Earth. So he gets really lonely, so they make a holographic girlfriend for him. <laughs> the problem is she's insubstantial. If you try and kiss her, he'll kiss whoever's standing behind her, which often leaves a great embarrassment. Just full of stupid things like that. That's kind of my mission statement. When I'm looking to write something, 
And I think, okay, I want it to be dramatic and exciting and satisfying and all that stuff. But above all, I want it to be something that sounds stupid. Could you go hunt down murder after he killed you? And you're still after him. Could you have a talking ferret animal detective? Could you drive an 18-ton powder blue vehicle? That's the best way of hiding out from the mob. There's a quality to those shows that you will not find elsewhere. And that's kind of what I look for when I read a script. You heard it here first. I would watch that ferret movie in a heartbeat. I'll tell him you said that. Well, Terry, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate this. Well, you're very welcome. I've got to do it. and we were talking about Dead Heat. So this was obviously not the first time that we've had a zombie cop comedy or zombie cop movie. Well, actually, it might be the first time that we have it a zombie cop movie because a couple years later, 1991, we had J.R. Bookwalter give us a movie called Zombie Cop. That's the name of it. And it's pretty much the same thing, except it's voodoo instead of science fiction stuff. And it looks like it was shot for about, I don't know, $15.62, something like that. And it, I, I, I almost felt good watching this movie because it just reminded me of that era of shitty VHS movies because this thing looked terrible. The acting was awful. The special effects were awful. And it just, it was like that era where anybody can pick up their VHS camcorder and make a movie. But I mean, J.R. Bookwalter, he made a lot of movies. And the thing was, he made movies. You know, it was, you can just sit on your ass and complain about stuff. But Bookwalter, he went out there and did it. And some of his movies are better than others. I have to say, I didn't enjoy Zombie Cop that much. But hey, you know, it was a movie. I haven't seen Zombie Cop, but I actually remember back in the 90s in junior high, I got an issue of Film Threat Video, and I believe it was Film Threat Video that had ads for some of his movies. Oh, yeah. They used to have those Tempe video ads all over the place. Yeah. Here's my question. Have they ever done a movie where they bring back a dead cop, but as a robot? Mm. Like Robot Cop. I yeah, I'm thinking immediately of Puchinski, where mm. the cop comes back as a dog, but I don't remember a robot cop. 
It I would buy, like, I'd buy that for a dollar. Yeah, existed. I'd buy that for two dollars. I don't know. I just hope nobody lets Frank Miller write the sequel. Your move, creep. As I was watching Dead Heat, probably, I don't know, a few years ago, because this is one of those movies that I will watch every like five years or so. And as I was watching it, eh, probably in the early 2000s, I was really reminded of another movie that I absolutely love that we talked about on the Mr. Vampire episode that we did last year, which is Magic Cop. And I'm turning my head and I'm looking at the Magic Cop poster right now, one of the few posters I have up. I love Magic Cop, and there's not that many similarities, but there's a couple things as far as the opening uh, of Magic Cop having this woman, well, it's not the opening, it's the second scene, but having this woman sitting at a diner and these cops are all watching her and they go to arrest her and she stands up and just starts walking out and they can't arrest her. They can't get her to stop because she's a zombie. So it's this whole idea of using zombies as your way to do crime. And I don't know. I, I hope I didn't foist this upon you guys, but this is one of my favorite films in the entire world. Oh, I enjoyed it. Oh, good. I'm so glad to hear that. Well, it's funny because the, the only uh, Mr. Vampire films I'd seen were the first one and the Gods Must Be Crazy crossover one. Oh, God, which is really terrible. Oh, I love that one. Oh, now, man. now, Gods Must Be Crazy 4 and 5, those are terrible. But Gods Must Be Crazy 3 is, is it shouldn't work and it largely doesn't, but it doesn't in a very amusing way. I would like it more if I could see everything subtitled because I've never Yeah, because the narrator's one. not subtitled, yeah. Yeah, which I think is Stephen Chow doing Stephen the narration. Chow, it's, it's Stephen Chow and one other guy, and they're having conversations. Yeah, I would love yeah. to see that fully uh, with all of the subtitles. But, I mean, there's some goofy shit in there. But I love Nick Sow, um, uh being possessed by the spirit of Bruce Lee. That's pretty they good. They managed to make it work. Yeah, and there was a lot of fun, you know, vamp- hopping vampire shenanigans in there, too. And uh, it, But, yeah, no, I, I thought Magic Cop, it, it, it just has so much energy and inventiveness in just, like, the way he'll just randomly string together these Rube, Rube Goldbergian spells. Yes. I love those little stupid moments when he'll like jump up and be above the door for doorway and he's got the, the stuff in his mouth like he's gonna you know use a flamethrower yep. on somebody. Just just to watch Lam Ching Ying move. I love watching that guy move. And just even when he's doing like the little finger things with the sand when he's measuring where the one uh muscle head guy is going, maybe that's what reminds me is that there's the muscle head in here and that he's using his fingers and measuring where he's going. Just watching Lam Ching Ying do that i was just like this is a fantastic sequence well yeah the whole scene where him and the witch lady are fighting each other even though they're in two separate locations and like she's using the strings and he's trying to feel around for where those strings might be and it's like this is this is how you this is how you make nonsense work you know it's it's just it's complete nonsense none of it means anything but it's just strung together in such a committed way that it's like that that's how you do absurdity perfectly I'm 100% invested in everything in that movie. I would love to give a shout out to, to Melissa Kirscher, one of my friends who has been for the last three years or so, been hosting a martial arts movie night double feature every other week at her house. And she's been like chronicling, like going through every era and every major star and just doing these great double features. And she's the one who's introduced me to the Mr. Vampire series. She loves that franchise. And, and it's been cool, like really getting into that whole era uh, of martial arts cinema. Or they're just having fun. I'm sorry, Noel. No shout-outs allowed. Denied. 
this is kind of the benefit of getting to like be a co-host on the show is, you know, even, even the co-host, you get to learn something new on this show. I've always wanted, I've heard about the Mr. Vampire series. I've always wanted to check it out. Um, and you guys have given me further, just kind of like a push to do it. Uh, I'm also intrigued by mixing the gods must be crazy. Oh, it's bizarre. Oh my God. No pun intended. <laughs> I see, I see what I did there, but yeah, that's, uh, I am, I am full on for that ride. I also watched the movie uh, Creature with the Atomic Brain, which had a very similar idea, too, as far as resurrecting uh, dead people and then using them. And then I'm like, okay, yeah, it's zombies and you're using them almost like golems. You know, it's kind of more the original idea of zombies. But this was using, like, uh, there's some nuclear power things in there. And I was just like, oh, okay, this is kind of cool. And then there was also Invisible Invaders, which was directed by the same guy and was almost the same movie, <laughs> but it was aliens instead of radiation that was used. Um, but yeah, these were like classic films. And then I was, while I was thinking, I was like, Oh, well basically that's plan nine from outer space as well as we are going to aliens are going to come along. They're going to resurrect dead bodies and the dead bodies are going to do their bidding and take over the world. So I'm like, Oh, okay. So we're getting far afield of dead heat when it comes to that stuff, but there's some similarities. If there's one last one I could throw in there, I know you've already done a full episode on it, so I won't get into it too much, but I do want to mention the hidden, um, which again, it's, it's not so much zombies, but again, it's these parasite possessed bodies that are going on these crime sprees. There's a lot of parallels between the two films. And I, I just, I realized that they're both produced by the same guy who did them back to back. Yeah, when I was talking about the opening of the movie, I was just like, wow, this is very similar to how The Hidden opens. Well, and both also have a scene where the lead character goes up to a freaking out cop and saying, give me your gun. I'm glad that you were able to watch The Hidden. That movie is so great. On a non-hidden note, I would like to just give a shout out, if I may. No shout outs allowed. Damn it. No, but it's, I'm holding it back for you, Heather. Shout it out. Thank you. Come on, Noel. You got this. Uh, is uh, when I hear creature with the atom brain or the atomic brain, I first think of the great Rocky Erickson song. And I just feel like Rocky Erickson should always get a shout out. And uh, that song's really good. So Denied. Speaking of, I saw in the interview where that the death dream party sequence was supposed to be set to a Madonna song. Okay, I was thinking Oingo Boingo, but that's just the obvious choice. Dead Man's Party using the Oingo Boingo in that sequence would be so much more fitting than where that song was actually used. Well, it's funny because in the um, the behind-the-scenes footage with Linnea Quigley working the puppet, you can hear uh, Burn It Up, which is one of my personal favorite mm. Madonna songs. I think that's the one oh, that they're okay. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Yes. Now, Oingo Boingo, I think you also used No One Lives Forever. Ooh. Oh, Wow. Uh, which was used because I have successfully mentioned Charles Rocket, I think, in at least three or four projection booth appearances, uh, was used in the movie Down Twisted that uh, was directed by Albert Pion. So. I know there were plans for a sequel to the point where Terry Black did write a Dead Heat 2 script. All that we know is that the cast was expected to return and there was going to be a scene where Rebecca performed an autopsy on herself. What else do you, th- where else do you think they could have gone with a dead heat too? I, I don't know. It's like as much as we've talked about, there are various things in this film. I think all three of us at, at different junctures would love to have seen expanded upon and explored. 
I'm kind of happy with it being its own thing, personally, because a, a sequel, a sequel could have been cool, but you know, there's always that risk of just sort of, you know, that's it's like Return of the Living Dead too. Like there are things that are good in it, but you know, it's just it's sequelitis, and it's hard to follow up a film like that. It's it's hard to it's probably hard to follow up a film like Dead Heat unless you just do like completely new characters. And maybe and maybe have a crossover character, like maybe the louder milk character, because you know there's that speculation that he's not even dead. Well, and I, I I had a thought of like what the what you could do, especially if you want to keep the entire cast, which is tricky because everyone died. Um, what if it like picks up immediately after where them blowing up the machine creates this big pulse that grows across L.A. and suddenly everyone in L.A. not only do the dead come back to life, but everyone who is alive is now eternally dead. So an entirely undead L.A. And just do a satire of L.A. culture. You know, again, go full Shane Black, go little Dan Waters. You know, like, hey, what is celebrity like now when every celebrity can't die? But their wounds also never heal. You know, what is the stunt industry, the filmmaking industry like? What is the plastic surgery industry like when you can now do modifications to the body that aren't going to kill people? Right, and that won't necessarily heal either. Exactly. And I think you could do a broader scale now you have an entire undead society. What happens now? I know Torchwood kind of touched on that during several story arcs, but I, I, I think it's an interesting concept. I think at the same time, though, you have to have a story to hang that on. And I think doing the same route as far as taking a uh, a film noir, taking a detective story and working that in. I mean, it's very what you're talking about could be looked at as almost a who framed Roger Rabbit as far as like what if tunes and people lived in the same world here. It's what if everybody was dead, but we are also looking at Hollywood. So I think you need to look at something like, I don't know, in a lonely place or something where you can say like, we're going to take this story and we're going to add it on to this other thing. But I, I like where you're headed with the setting. At least it's fantastic. Oh, I was just thinking Day of the Locust. Ooh. Oh, yeah. Nice. Uh, like, if you just kind of just full on... Because that's the thing. There, there is potential in this in this universe, in this film's universe, to where you could even excise a lot of the comedy and just go full tilt. Just noir, full tilt, dark. Um, and that would be kind of interesting, too. It'd be a different movie, obviously. Uh-huh. But um, but yeah, no, I like but I like I like where you're going with that, too, Noel. Does that mean we get zombie influencers? Well, and then I just also had the thought of like, you, again, if you just have it like isolated to L.A., you have this entire town that's built around the immortality of stardom as everyone's just rapidly decaying away. All of the old stars are suddenly back and all the new stars are dying alongside them. Well, it's like you recreate some of those posters of like Marlon Brando, James Dean, Marilyn Monroe, and John Wayne, and they're all in the same place. Yeah, I think that I, I'm I'm gonna. If anyone wants to buy this pitch, you can contact my agent. At, no, oh. I want to give a shout out to Denied. It's a shame that it's a shame that Terry Black's actual script for it has never surfaced. Yeah, I would be very curious to see that. Because I really like what he did with this script. I thought it was fantastic. Yeah, and I'm, I'm kind of it's kind of a bummer that I know he's he's had a career, but he just kind of this is his one movie, and then he just kind of settled into just, just kind of doing some odd and ends TV shows here and there. And I did watch a couple. Um, he did a Twilight. He did a Tales from the Crypt episode that was a blast. I know he brought it up in the interview where it's the the one where the the guy has nine lives and he just keeps dying as an entertainment routine. 
Oh, it's, right. It's a, Dig that cat. He's real gone. Oh, it's a magnificent episode. I just watched it today. It was directed by Richard Donner, uh, starring G- Joe Pantoliano and Robert Wool as a carnival barker. And it is just a really crackling, sharp, bitingly dark story. And I love it. And then I watched an episode of 18 Wheels of Justice. Which I love the name for. And I probably yeah. would have totally been into that had it been like a early 80s show and had a uh, monkey in it. Well, and to be fair, his episode, what he did three episodes. I watched one of them. It was a fun episode where the first half is basically a women in prison exploitation parody. And then like he frees one of the women prisoners and then it's like a whole assault on precinct 13 siege on a warehouse sequence. Almost none of the episode actually involved a semi truck. I would love to know, is there more that Terry Black did? Like, did he do ghostwriting? Did he have other scripts that were never produced? I know in one of the interviews it said before he sold Dead Heat, he wrote seven mystery novels and two Western novels, but I couldn't find any, so I'm betting he wrote them under a pseudonym. So it's like, there's, I want, I want there to be more writing by this guy out there. I read a few stories that he has on his blog, but they're kind of more just, you know, uh, little, little life incident type uh type of uh, articles and all that stuff. But yeah, Terry Black, that script is one of those scripts that makes me want to read more by that writer. And it's a shame that there's not more of it out there. But no, I mean, I think Dead Heat actually holds up better than a lot of things that are, are probably celebrated um, and remembered a lot more fondly for nostalgic reasons. And um, I mean, I would actually rather watch it than Ghostbusters. And I know that's probably a... Someone might think that's a hot take. I don't mean it. I'm not hating on Ghostbusters. It's an enjoyable film, but it's kind of like almost overrated. And I think it's because of nostalgia, like, because it's a fun supernatural comedy. And, and you know, Dead Heat has a little more to chew on. It's also got a lot more gore. So I guess I appreciate that. But um, now that I'm totally triggered because of you saying disparaging remarks about Ghostbusters, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Assassiné à Balboa. Oui, un meurtre à Balboa. Un timbre à 35, s'il vous plaît. Oui, voilà, un meurtre. Où ça Et ici Ici même, à Balboa. C'est inimaginable, un crime à Balboa. Elles valent 5000 dollars, comptant. Tête chérie, je n'ai découvert la vie que le jour où je t'ai rencontré. Je vais lui télégraphier, envoie-moi argent pour satisfaire maître chanteur. Mon mari me téléphonera dès que ça lui sera possible. Je crains que nous ne puissions attendre. Oui, je, je sais que ta jeunesse se révolte, qu'elle a ses aspirations. Peut-être aurais-je éprouvé les mêmes sentiments à ton âge. Et... Avec cette différence, maman, c'est qu'aujourd'hui, quand on a 17 ans, on n'est plus une enfant. Il faudrait mieux y aller moi-même. Je m'en occupe. Tiens-toi tranquille, je te défends d'y aller. Tu me défends Oui, hein? je te le défends. C'est une dame, il ne faut pas regarder si haut, Martin. Vous êtes une femme rudement dangereuse. Donnelly était un type régulier jusqu'à ce qu'il vous rencontre. Je ne sais pas ce que vous lui avez fait, mais, mais je ne perdons suis... pas de temps. Où est l'argent
défendu de venir ici. Je te l'avais défendu. Je te l'avais défendu. That's right, we'll be back next week with the first entry in our Noir Vember celebration, The Reckless Moment. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Noel and Heather. Heather, what is the latest with you? Well, I am in the process of finishing up the second part of my article miniseries that is based around the legendary theatrical and satirical rock band The Tubes. It's called Darted in My Armchair, and this installment uh, revolves around their underrated album Young and Rich. Uh, for all this and much more, uh, updates and all, you can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, and my website, mondoheather.com. Where I can subscribe to your newsletter? Yes, I don't actually have it on the website yet. I guess I was going to... I am branching out and starting a newsletter that I'll be sending out probably tonight before I go to bed, if not tonight, tomorrow. So it's very new territory for me. But um, if you, good listener, are interested, and uh, I promise I won't hate on Ghostbusters in it, <laughs> you could uh, send me your email address at heatherburydrain at gmail.com. And Noel, what is happening in your world, sir? Ah, Masters of Carpentry. I'm just finishing up the Rob Zombie's Halloween 2 episode. And this Halloween, we're going to debut our episode on Halloween 2018. And over at Shumacast, literally just two days from now, we're going to be recording our episode on A Time to Kill. Which means we have already recorded our episode on Batman Forever. And nothing is ever going to be the same. How did that go for you? I'm not one of the people who argues that it needs to be rediscovered. That's very nice that you don't have that hot take on that. Yeah, and Batman and Robin is next month. Well, thank you again, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
show and want more people to know about it head on over to itunes leave a comment and rate it five stars make sure you like and share us on facebook and don't forget to follow us on twitter just search for christopher media thank you in advance for supporting christopher media by clicking on the paypal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support christophermedia.net most importantly we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you christopher media could not exist without your support thank you for visiting christophermedia.net and thank you for listening Christopher Media, let's make some noise.